3: Morning after, uh, morning after the primaries in New York, Florida, and Oklahoma. Not a lot of major surprises. Um, I think the the big surprise to me, anyway, in New York, is that uh, Marcus Molinero lost that special election. Not a primary, but a special election in the uh, Antonio Delgado seat. I thought Molinero was going to pick uh, was going to win that one. So that's interesting. Uh, Charlie Crist winning the Democratic primary for governor in Florida. He will take on incumbent Republican Ron DeSantis in November. Other than that, I think everything went more or less how folks thought it would. One of the things that I didn't get to mention a couple of minutes ago was in New York. The the thing that I was watching was to see how all these moderates that Eric Adams supported, how they fared. Well, looks like they lost. Looks like almost all of them lost. We're still waiting for some results, but the uh, Kevin Parker, who Adams supported, won. Everyone else, including that that minister, he almost finished third. So uh, Eric Adams uh, did not fare well in the uh, in the primaries in New York for state senate. So. On to November. We'll see what happens. There's a number of very competitive races in New York. And I think that Florida race, at least according to what Roger Stone told us, I think that Florida race is going to be more competitive than um, most people think between DeSantis and Charlie Crist. We'll certainly see where it goes. Now, one thing that I did want. So if you have questions about it, you have comments, you have anything you want to say, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. One of the stories that I find pretty interesting, though, is what's happening at CNN. Now, by now, if you even follow the news media even somewhat closely, you know that Brian Stelter, the host, the media critic at CNN and the host of reliable sources, has been fired. They've canceled reliable sources. Brian Stelter has been told to pack his bags But what's interesting to me is not necessarily the stelter firing, but what happens next. What they're apparently claiming what's being reported is that the staff of CNN fears that the this is going to be the first in line of a major shakeup with John Malone, a right leaning billionaire who's pretty close to the Murdoch family. He's made it well known that he would like CNN to be more centrist, whatever that means. Now, he's also said that he would like a greater separation between the news programming and the opinion programming. Now, I think those are both great things. I'd love to see more centrist programming, and I'd love to see more um, more of a delineation between the news programming and the opinion programming. Because you look at some of the shows that are on there now, Don Lemon, for instance— Anderson Cooper, these aren't news shows. They're opinion shows. That's them essentially pontificating and finding guests that are going to reiterate the editorial points that they're looking to make. So uh, the question that I have for you, we got an action-packed show that deals with a whole bunch of other things as well, and we'll get into them in just a moment. But question that I have for you is what would you like to see CNN look like? If John Malone or the new boss over at CNN, Chris Licht, who used to work here, by the way, he used to produce the uh, Joe Scarborough radio show when Joe and Mika were here. He used to come here every day. Well, when we were at our old location, he was I, I always got the impression that he was kind of a stuffed shirt. Honestly, I, I would not describe him as friendly at all. I, I thought he was a little um, I don't know, a little gruff, to be honest, I a mean, nice enough guy. He was polite, but. He was not warm, I'll say that, at a time when most of the people that worked here were very warm. But anyway, Chris Licht apparently wants some changes. He wants more news coverage. So if you were advising John Malone and Chris Licht about how to do the two things that they're rumored to want to do, move CNN in a centrist direction Rather than a just a left wing direction and have a greater delineation between news coverage and opinion pontificating, what would you tell them? 800 848 9222. That's 800 848 9222. First thing is, I'll tell you, I mean, this is easy because I'm such a fan of his. Michael Smirconish, the show that he does on Saturday, that should be the Chris Cuomo slot. That should be on every night in prime time, Monday through Friday, boom. That would get me watching CNN in primetime for the first time in years, probably since Crossfire was on the air. And the other thing is, what's wrong with having another show like Crossfire? I know they tried to bring it back about nine years ago where you had uh, Newt Gingrich on the right and Van Jones on the left. I don't know why they discontinued that, but if they're really looking for balance, I'd love to see a couple of shows like that and more creative Opinion shows, if you're going to have opinion shows, have a diversity of opinion, because not every issue can be boiled down to a left versus a right construct. And I'd love to see a recognition that there's some nuance. I'd love to see a a media criticism show hosted by somebody like Michael Tracy. Uh, Michael Tracy is certainly somebody that's on the on the left, but he is very tough On people on the left. So I'd love to see something like that. Let me tell you what's coming up. Very excited about this. In about 15 minutes, we're going to talk with Anya Kamenets. She has written a terrific book called The Stolen Year How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. One of my great frustrations in talking about COVID is that it so often becomes an ideological battleground liberals come on come on and make the case as to why the lockdowns were responsible and conservatives come on and make the case as to why they were irresponsible when the truth is very rarely do things get boiled down to ideological um, you know affirmation of what your pre-existing notion of what the right thing to do was she has done some really interesting things with this book she's delved into the data She's looked at who was most affected by COVID in terms of demographics, in terms of age, in terms of educational needs, and she's looked at every aspect of society um, from child care to mental health to schools to courts to race to hunger, and it's a fascinating, fascinating book. So I am very much looking forward to having her on in about fifteen minutes, and I can't wait in the three in the uh, third hour of the show. We are going to be joined by legendary radio DJ, probably the most famous DJ in history, the one and only Cousin, Cousin Brucie. Brucie.
2: I cannot
3: wait uh, to talk with Cousin Brucey. I have gotten to know Cousin Brucey a little bit uh, over the last two years of, uh, of working for the same company that he works for now. But um, I am just a huge fan. I listen to him all the time and have for literally decades. I can't wait to uh, to talk with him. We'll talk about radio. We'll talk about his career. We'll talk about what's happening with music. I have literally pages worth of questions that um, that I'm going to try and get to when we talk. But uh, your reaction to the primaries and your thoughts, your suggestions on what advice you would give CNN to see it go in a more centrist direction. Okay. I'd like serious suggestions here. I mean, I, I don't want to hear, uh, oh, you know, they need to hire—I um, don't know—Marjorie Taylor Greene and give her three hours a day. Okay, yeah, I'm not looking for a way to, uh, you know, placate to conservatives or placate to liberals. I'm looking for serious suggestions as to how we can get CNN in a more centrist direction. And you know what? We'll we'll send this over to John Malone. And to uh, Brian Stelter, I don't know this for a fact, but I guarantee you that uh, that John Katsimatidis is friendly with John Malone. I guarantee you, John's never said that to me, but I guarantee you they know one another. And I bet you he would take some suggestions from John Katsimatidis about how to make CNN a product that regular independent people would want to watch. Now, News Nation said they were trying to do this, but two things happened. One. And uh, they put out, I think, a decent product initially, but one nobody watched. They got a fraction of the audience that all the other cable news networks were getting. And then the second thing was they went and hired Chris Cuomo. And that's not necessarily an indication that you want to focus on just the news, right? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Let me begin with John in Freehold.
4: Hello, John. Hey, Frank. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you. Um Yeah, I would like to see CNN. They they have to remember that they're, you know, they're worldwide. They used to be just strictly news. There should be no opinion shows whatsoever. It should be just straight what's going on, and it should be what's going on in, like, you know, a bunch of states, what's going on in the world. I have no idea. They don't report anything that's going on in any other country. It should just be news that's factual, that you can back up with evidence. No opinions, just who won the election or what happened today. That's it. Yeah, I
5: I think that I
4: think a lot of people would would appreciate
3: the appeal of something like that. I know headline news was kind of trying to move in that direction a little bit. But let me ask you this, John, just to play devil's advocate. And I, I actually like a lot of what you what you suggest. But just to for for to stir the pot a little bit. Nobody is unbiased. Nobody, right? So if somebody is not giving you their opinion overtly, that doesn't mean they have no opinion. That means they're just not telling you what it is. At least. When I watch Tucker Carlson or Michael Smirconish or Anderson Cooper, I know that these people have a bias and they're presenting news and commentary through a bias. So I think some people might say if they went with the John and Freehold suggestion of just no opinions, uh, just the the facts, ma'am, Sergeant Joe Friday news, then um, they would still be trying to slip in an editorial bent. But they just wouldn't be doing it overtly. What do you say to that, John?
4: Uh, Unfortunately, I'd have to agree with you because, you know, regardless of if it's uh, conservative news or if it's uh, liberal, there's always an agenda. Like, I just wish there was no agenda. But that would be a perfect world, you know.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks, John. Uh, I I like the conceit, uh, but uh, I just worry about the application of how it would go. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You know what I would like to see, and I'm just kind of spitballing here. I'd much rather hear your suggestions. I would love to see that uh, on the – first of all, there's no conservative shows. I mean they could do well to have a conservative commentator or to actually have a show on there. And CNN has a long history of conservative commentators on their network, people like uh, Bob Novak, Pat Buchanan, Tucker Carlson, uh, many others. And um, not just people – not just anchors but commentators, people like Jeffrey Lord, Corey Lewandowski. Uh, But um, I would love to see on the liberal shows – At the the last five or ten minutes of the show, give a conservative media critic an opportunity to respond to everything that happened in that hour. Like at the end of Don Lemon, uh, you say, all right, well, here's uh, George Will to give his take. And then George Will says, well, I don't agree with what Don Lemon said about taxes," And he goes on and explains why. Wouldn't that be something that at least you feel like your side is getting a fair airing? What else would you suggest? Let's have some really solid, creative, interesting suggestions. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Frank is in Yonkers. Hello,
5: Frank. There I go. Sorry? Yeah, I'm, here, I'm here. I'm here. Okay.
4: What's on to, your mind? I was just doing something. Frank, my pleasure. And just a quick shout-out to John to 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 uh, John Cassimatides and his lovely wife, Margot, they're both angels first amen. i, I
3: couldn't agree with you more
4: now I, I, short to the point what I'd like to see i i I've CNN do is burn to the ground That's it.
3: all right. well, that strikes me as very constructive and very creative and exactly the kind of productive conversation we're looking to have. okay, Jacqueline in Brooklyn, how about you?
6: Hey, Frank? Good morning. Um, I kind of agree with not what this last caller said, but the caller before him. Really, what they need to do is they need to hire people that will tell the truth, they will give you the facts, and they won't have any kind of a bias when they present the information. I currently get most of my news not only from you know listening to WABC, but on, on TV I either watch Newsmax or I watch uh, the Catholic Channel and also the Christian uh, channels, and they really do present the news in a very factual way, and it really is not biased. You know they they may um, have their values and they present their values, but for the most part they tell you the news the way it is. They tell you the truth. And
3: so, you know, I appreciate that. You think we need more of that uh, Joe Friday, just the facts commentary when no commentary, just the news.
4: Pretty much. If you're watching news, you want the news. You don't want someone's opinion. Yeah,
3: that's fair. That's fair, Jacqueline. You know, the other thing I wonder um, is I would love to see, you know, how a lot of newspapers over over the years used to have an ombudsman role where they would respond to readers' letters, what if every day on CNN there was an ombudsman that responded to complaints about the CNN coverage? That's another thing that I like about Smirconish's show. At the end of his show, every Saturday morning on CNN, he responds to all the, not all, but much of the social media criticism. You know, uh, David in the Bronx, who calls our show, Smirconish has repeatedly taken issue with the tweets from David in the Bronx. You know, David in the Bronx has a way of getting under people's skin. I don't think that's—I don't think that's a news flash to uh, to anybody. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Frank is in Queens. Hello, Frank.
2: Hey, Frank. Um, so I worked in the media business for twenty five years prior to my current life. Um, so I'm pretty familiar with ratings and things like that. The funny thing about CNN is they used to be very much independent, and right. they had that lane. And they ended up switching to the left in the name of ratings. And ironically, they ended up getting less ratings. They still trail MSNBC and Fox by huge, huge amounts of uh, viewership. So what I would suggest is, especially in prime time, I would love to see a Larry King-type show back on the air where they're interviewing maybe someone like LeBron James or a famous celebrity. I think that would bring bring in more viewers that aren't so much political, per se.
3: Frank, I have to tell you, I love that suggestion. I think that's a great idea. And there's not a show on like that on cable news right now. The closest thing that's on there, uh, and maybe they could give him a show on CNN, but the closest thing to a show like the one you're describing is Joe Rogan's podcast uh, where he gets people from all walks of life and has a lengthy conversation with them that's not rushed into eight and a half minutes, but where you Have an hour where you can actually think and have complete full thoughts. I love that. And you know what? The thing is, the challenge for CNN or any network, quite frankly, is there's not necessarily a lot of people that can pull off that well, the, the, the format that you're describing, as effectively as Larry King did. Because remember, they tried to do that with Piers Morgan. When Piers Morgan took over for Larry King and the show was a disaster, it, it, it paled in comparison both in terms of ratings and quality to the show that Larry King uh, was doing. Now, I would argue that's because uh, Piers Morgan couldn't stop himself from going on these unhinged rants on issues that he was, uh, in, that he was passionate about. But I'd love to see that. Who do, you think, who do you think would be a good host of an hour like that on CNN?
2: I really don't know, Frank. I mean, I agree with you. Um, if I had that answer, I would be one of the suits at CNN. Well, th-
3: <laughs> yeah, thank you, Frank. It is interesting. And just bring back that Larry King format. I'd love to see it. 800 Alex in Brooklyn. How about you?
7: Yeah, thanks for taking the call. Before sure. I get to my comment, I just wanted to follow up on your Friday program. What kind of scrambled eggs did you have over the weekend, and did you specifically have the sweet potato and sautéed onions? No, eggs? no
3: sweet potato and uh, sautéed onions. I did have—so on Saturday, um, my wife made an omelet that did include sautéed onions, which was delicious. On Sunday, mm. my uh, my civil court judge and friend, uh, Brendan Lantry, came over, and he made manchego scrambled eggs, which were out of this world. They were They were delectable.
7: That was one of the one of the eggs that you were talking about on the program. No, right? no.
3: no, it was a new one. Right. He was inspired to oh. do it based on our conversation on Friday. But your recipe's on okay. my list, Alex. Believe me.
7: Okay, thank you. Um, so I wanted to say that the fact that they're not willing to bring on a pro-Trump Republican, not just like Adam Ke- Adam Kinziger or Liz Cheney, you know, to debate them on issues that they're talking about on liberal shows shows you that they don't have the ability to respond to. Uh, Debate and arguments coming from the the MAGA side, or you could say that the pro-Trumpists are afraid to go on liberal programs, but I don't think that's the case because if you look at Dan Bongino, he'll bring bring on a liberal any day on his unfiltered show on Fox every Saturday night while they won't.
3: Yeah, well, it's a great point. It's a great point, Alex. Thank you. And uh, I think um, I think that, that it's certainly something that they could do well to do, as have a little bit more ideological diversity. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello.
8: I'm going to go with this lineup, Frank. This is my lineup at CNN. Uh, the Crossfire Show will be at 7. I'll try to get Pappy Cannon and James
9: Carville. I know
8: they're 8, but we're going to try it. Jake Tapper at 8. Michael Smearconish at 9, and Chris Wallace will be 10. He's Ooh. kind of the center. I like that. If I can't get Chris Wallace, get ready for this. I'm going to have the Frank and Curtis Lewis show at 10 o'clock again. <laughs> <simul-cat. laughs>
3: My schedule is pretty full, uh, but uh, I would, I would, that would be fun. I'd love to do that. Uh, you know, you remember James Arness from Gunsmoke? James Arnest did an interview, I think it was with New York Magazine, or if it wasn't New York Magazine, maybe it was The New Yorker or some magazine like that that does long-form journalism. And James Arnest said in this in this interview that his favorite TV show at the time was Curtis and Kubi, the MSNBC show. Do you remember that MSNBC show they did? That was James Arnest's favorite show. How cool is that? I would love to see those guys do a show again. you imagine that? Or if Kuby wouldn't do it, maybe Curtis and uh, Richard Bay. That would be interesting. Robert's in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. Hi,
5: Frank. Uh, I think one of the most honest things that... Um That CMS could do is when they hold interviews with politicians and other public figures, when they get a progressive, they ask only cream puff questions, no hard questions, no challenges to anything they say. But when they get a conservative, they ravage them. Um, they need to hold audience interviews where they they, they they ask tough questions to both sides, whether they're a progressive
4: or a conservative.
5: Yeah, I, Robert, amen.
3: I think that's a great suggestion, which is one of the reasons why I think the previous caller's suggestion of having Chris Wallace have a regular show on there might be effective, because Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday, I always got the impression, I know some people weren't handle, happy with his handling of the... Uh, presidential debates in 2016 and 2020. But as the host of that Sunday show, Fox News Sunday, I always got the impression that he was very interested in in asking everybody tough questions. But uh, I know other folks may disagree. Igor in Fairfield, hello.
9: Hey there, Frank. You know, the suggestion about Larry King,
5: I think the ratings are all about personality. And, you know, like what you've done with radio here, your kind of show, middle of the road, equal time, both sides. It's not surprising that a guy like Larry King from a talk show background, just you add the pictures to it, could engage somebody for a full hour and take calls at the same time.
3: So you like that uh, the, the suggestion of bringing back a, a Larry King style show in prime time?
5: A- absolutely, yeah. because uh, because I, I think it's that center of personality. And if you think about when CNN, quote unquote, was at its best. It was about Larry King. It was about those big interviews that you remember. It's about Marlon Brando and, the, uh, you know, the unusual moments. And, and people talking about the next day at work. I think that's when they were at their best.
3: Uh, Igor, well said. I feel like we got some good suggestions here. I am going to try and get this last 15 minutes to um, Chris Licht and John Malone, although I was a little insulting to Chris Licht with his tenure here. Maybe we'll edit that out of this commentary before i send it to him but with the exception of what i've said about chris Licht, we'll send it to him as is and hopefully it'll uh hopefully it'll spark some some people thinking over there 808 for 892 22 chris is in the Catskills. chris i heard you on with uh andrew giuliani and dominic uh last night not surprisingly i heard you mention that you were of course an elected official
10: uh-huh. um yes yeah. Chris,
3: Chris, I I don't know. You sound like you're speaking to us from the space shuttle. Actually, we have audio from a black hole that we may play later. That actually sounds more clear than what you sound like. I don't know where you are. You sound horrible. Call back later and uh, we'll be happy to uh, give you an opportunity to be heard. All right. The stolen year. Our children have had a tough time with COVID. How has COVID changed children's lives and where do we go from here? What lessons do we need to learn for the next epidemic, the next pandemic? We're going to explore it with Anya Kamenetz. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Frank Marano.
3: Silhouettes, get a job. We're gonna have um, cousin Brucey on a little bit later. So uh, one of the things we're gonna try and do is highlight a bunch of the music that you might hear on cousin Brucey's show any uh, any given week. So uh, you'll you'll hear a few gems like this throughout the throughout the morning. Hey, uh, so we're slated to talk with Anya Caminetti, uh, author of the book The Stolen Year. But uh, Kenneth informs me. That uh, that she is not answering. I'll tell you what happened. Uh, you know, again, uh, again. Ideally, I like to call people before the show and confirm that they're ready. But I guess that's me dreaming about a perfect world that doesn't exist. You know, re- reality is a different thing from a perfect world. I tell you what probably happened. We booked her for um, Wednesday at one thirty Eastern, right? She probably thinks it's Thursday. It's Wednesday night. Not when not Thursday morning. That's probably what went on. So maybe she'll be on tomorrow or maybe she's ducking me. She hears the tough questions that I pose to the people on this show and didn't want to come on. Uh, I don't think that's it because actually I, I really liked her book. And I thought I mean, I thought there were some interesting things in it. So uh, hopefully she'll uh, will come on either a little bit later today or maybe in the future. We'll see what happens. All right. A lot to get a lot to get to uh, throughout the course of the program. You know, one thing that I, um, you know, if you want to comment on anything we're talking about, 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222. And uh, we'll get into a new proposal for the U.N. a little bit later, and a bunch of other things that I think you're going to be interested in, and uh, some space news as well. Meantime, Mark is in Garden City. Hello, Mark.
12: How are you, Frank? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Frank, um, what time is Cousin Bruce
9: going to be on tonight? Two hours from now. Great. I'm just calling to say I think CNN
4: should have a Larry King-type show, and I think you would be the perfect guy to host it because, you know, you're the guy that does the great interviews. Oh,
3: well, actually, Mark, that's the best suggestion I've heard so far. it's <laughs> very kind of you. Thank you. Well, it's true also. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mark. That's very kind uh, in all seriousness. 800-848-9222. That's 800 800-848-92- 848 Chuchu, you know, speaking of the pandemic, I read this interesting article all about the importance of hobbies, right? And we've covered before, and uh, Tim Wu wrote an interesting piece in the New York Times a few years ago, and I cited it recently, about the importance of doing hobbies, even ones that you're not good at, Because it sort of stretches different parts of your brain and it strengthens different aspects of your of your constitution and your your brain. And so. um, I read this interesting article about all of these hobbies that people picked up during the pandemic and many folks are sticking with them. So I'm curious if you started to do something. During the pandemic, whatever it was, what was it and have you kept with it during the return to normality, the return to normal life? 800-848-9222. That's one 800 848 Something that you do purely for yourself, even if it's hard and even if you're bad at it. I'll give you my answer, and it's not something that I've kept up with as much as I uh, I wish I would have. I know a lot of people have picked up pickleball. And I'm slated to, uh, you know, to play a friend of mine in racquetball this week. I'm looking forward to that. I haven't played racquetball in about 15 years. That was not something that I picked up during the pandemic. I still have not played pickleball. I've never played it. I bought, I bought a pickleball paddle and a ball, and I'm looking forward to uh, trying my hand at pickleball, but I still haven't played it yet. I'll tell you what I did do. During the... And I was inspired to do this by my brother, Alexander. During the pandemic, I started for the first time in maybe at least 20 years, probably more, roller skating again. And lo and behold, I was not nearly as good of a roller skater as I remember I was falling all over the place. I mean, I, once you sort of practice a little bit and you get in the hang of it a little bit, I did get uh, I did get better at it again. Not like I remember being when I was in the fourth or fifth grade when I thought I was quite good. Uh, but uh, my wife and I would roller skate, and sometimes we would meet uh, my brother and his girlfriend, and we would all, you know, roller skate together. That was something that I had an enormous amount of fun with, and that is not something that I've kept up with since we've returned to normal life. I'm curious, what have you done during the pandemic that you've kept up with or not kept up with? 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222. I know people that took up uh, collecting different things. I have one friend that uh, took up knitting, and uh, I don't know that she's kept up with it since we've gone back to normal life. But uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't really have that much of a disruption to my life during the pandemic. I mean, it was difficult that everything was closed, but I still went to work every day just as I normally would in person. A lot of other folks were stuck home all day. So picking up a hobby, whatever it would be, might be the only social interaction or the only sort of, I don't know, way of breaking up the monotony that they were able to to do other than watching television and listening to radio. So I'm curious if you picked up one of these, 800-848-9222, because I think um, one of the things that we're seeing in The Atlantic, this uh, there's this poll that they cite that 59% of Americans say they picked up a new hobby during the pandemic. That's six out of ten of you. So I think uh, there might be some good suggestions here if people are looking to pick up a hobby. Um, it's never too late. To pick up a hobby. And in Axios. They have a letter from uh, Michael in Phoenix, Arizona. Who writes this. I'm 60 years old. And three years ago. I started piano lessons. My nine-year-old son started at the same time I did. And he's so much better than I am. I love how learning a musical instrument. Is both mentally and physically challenging. Emily in Winterville, Georgia writes. I took up tap dancing. In my 50s. Germaine. In California, writes, in my 70s, and I just bought a violin. Have never played one. Goal, to accomplish a soloist singing. And Susan in Denver, Colorado, writes, I've been learning to speak Korean for one year now. That's cool. It's not easy. I have to work very hard to immerse myself in all aspects of the language and culture, but it's fun. So I think that's uh, I think that's interesting. My wife tried to do... She was... Uh, brushing up on her Spanish during the pandemic. And uh, I don't know that she's kept up with her Spanish lessons since the pandemic ended and we've gotten back to normal. Now, we also had a child in that time. And uh, that has taken up a lot of her her bandwidth. So I don't know that she has very much free time beyond working and taking care of young Carmine, young Carmine William Moreno, uh, who uh, we now that we... Have been exposed to this week of radio content, maybe we should have called him Carmine Willard Morano, but he is indeed carmine william, so i don 't know that she has much time to study Spanish these days, but that was her thing during the during the pandemic. So I was roller skating, friend of mine was knitting, and uh, Rachel was Spanish. What was yours? Did you pick up a new hobby during the pandemic eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John
7: Hello, Frank. I regret to say that what I should have done was to do more writing.
3: And what stopped you? Why didn't you?
7: I I had a very good reason, uh, two very good reasons. I was taking care of my mother. Ah. And I was dealing with the effects of what probably is long COVID. It was having effects on some of my internal organs and my eyesight. But the good news is I finally got around to... Finishing an unpublished novel I've been working on for years and putting it aside. And I have two literary agents who are reading the full manuscript.
3: Oh, so you did get to brush up. You did get to focus more on your writing then during but the pandemic.
7: I only did that within the last three months.
3: Oh, okay. Well, that's hey, that's great. I think one of the lessons from this Atlantic piece is that, uh, you know, I'm going to link to this on my Facebook page. One of the lessons in this Atlantic piece is that it's never too late to pick up one of these hobbies. Uh, whether it's uh, during the pandemic era or post-pandemic or anytime, right? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. What about you, Matt Blaze? You pick? A, did you pick up any hobbies during the uh, pandemic?
13: I was so busy, I couldn't pick up any hobby. What were you so busy doing? Research, riding my bike. That's what I did. Research for what? Well, show stuff, you know, uh-huh. when I was on the air, that kind of stuff. All right,
3: okay. Well, were you a, a cyclist before the pandemic also?
13: Well, I know how to ride a bike since I was a kid. I didn't say I picked up bike riding, but I have a bike, and I have woods by my house. So I went, there's bike trails back there.
3: Right, I guess my the question that I feel like you're trying to evade is, were, did you bike more during the pandemic? Yeah. Asthma? You did? Oh, no, I did bike So more. that was your, your hobby during the pandemic, Right. biking. Right. Okay. All right. 800-8-4-8-92-22. Virginia is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Virginia.
4: Hello. How are you, Frank?
3: I'm great. Thanks I for calling.
4: I tell you, it was because of
8: the pandemic I started listening to WABC, and I can't stop. I listen to it morning and night all day now. I'm retired, and I just don't
3: shut it off. That's terrific. Hey, so what did you listen to on the radio prior to the pandemic? I didn't. So, just radio listening in general, that was something Absol- that you picked up.
8: Yes, that's great. Yes, but it was uh, but it was WABC. Well, no, I got to say in the morning I used to listen to ten ten wins for the news and shut it off.
3: All right. And well, I to- love to hear that, Virginia. Hope you're spreading the word for us now.
8: I I can't stop listening.
3: Uh, it's wonderful, um, Virginia.
8: I do love. I do really love. The radio station. That's
3: great. That's terrific. Thank you, Virginia. Appreciate that. Let us go from Virginia to Virginia, where Jay is calling from. Hello, Jay.
4: Hey, Frank. How are you?
3: I'm well, thanks.
4: Well, thank you. So during
8: the pandemic, I picked up a new hobby of 3D modeling.
9: What is 3D modeling?
8: Well, you create 3D models on the computer and animations and stuff.
3: That sounds really neat. How did you get into that?
8: Well, I was just bored, and I always, I always wanted to do it, and I just found a free program online and free lessons, and I got really into it.
3: Well, that's pretty cool. I, I, um, what's something that you've modeled that you could tell us about?
8: I, oh, nothing really much. I, I, mean, I've just done the tutorials, and I made a coffee and a, and a donut, and nothing, nothing too cool. But it's, you know, it's cool to do, to do that when you started from scratch.
3: Well, that, that's pretty neat, Jay. Thank you. You know, I used to, when I was a child, um, I used to make Star Trek models. You know, they used to have these kits where you could put together models of uh, Star Trek uh, ships, you know, ships that were there. And I really enjoyed that. I thought that was a lot of fun. And uh, I thought it was like kind of peaceful. I always pictured people making ships in a bottle and getting the same sort of satisfaction out of it and i don't know um i don't know why. i never I, I don't know why i stopped that but i'm surprised i didn't try that a little bit more during the pandemic when everything was shut down the restaurants and the bars and everything of that nature i still have some old star trek models i think uh, that the kits itself maybe that's something when carmine's a little older that we can uh, that we can work
13: on together you said you were roller skating yeah now, do you have your own roller, skates? Or roller well, skates? I bought them. I bought them during the pandemic. Uh, no, they were roller skates with four wheels or roller blades?
3: Uh, this... No, they were not inline skates. Uh, they were, you know, and again, uh, roller blades are a brand name, uh, Where is but inline skates is the straight you know, line. Uh, but no, they were
13: proper roller skates. Now, did you go to a park? Did you just skate but on the street? All of the
3: above. Uh, on the street, in a schoolyard that was by my apartment at the time, and then um, this pavilion that was in a park... That I would meet my uh, my brother and his
13: girlfriend at. So yeah, all of the above. Now, is there a roller skating? Well, everything was closed. Is there is there a roller rink? Somewhere in Staten Island? Uh, there
3: was in the, uh, in the Tauntonville area. I think that, my, I've never been there, uh, so I think uh, I think that might have closed. I'm not sure if that's still, I'm not sure if that's still open. Uh, no, it's still, yeah, I just looked it up. It's still
13: open, yeah. I used to love roller skating.
3: Yeah, it's fun. Well, maybe come out to uh, my hometown. We'll do some roller skating again. <laughs> yeah,
13: buy some skates.
3: Yeah, well, get, get some skates. Maybe me on a Saturday and we'll do, a, you'll join me in my digital detox day. Yeah. And while it's still nice weather, we'll do some roller skating. Right. That'll be fun. 800-848-9222. Peter in the Bronx, did you pick up a habit during the pandemic?
12: Yeah, uh, Frank, I got into 18th century living, specifically writing letters and and putting wax seals on them. However, you can't mail them because the post office machines can't handle the wax seals, so they'll slice them right off. But I, I also got into the old sailing wooden ships, and I loved watching documentaries on on you know what they had like cook, going around the world. Anything that has to do with eighteenth century, I just became obsessed with well, during the pen.
3: Well, the nineteenth century, but
12: seventeen um, hundreds. Well, yeah, 17, 1800s, Yeah.
3: Okay, so why that I- era of history specifically?
12: I I just I I don't know. I liked I I like writing with dipping pens. And that really took off with me, and then mm. I saw the movie *Mutiny on the Bounty* with Marlon Brando, oh, and I just fell love that with picture. That. And and then I I just had I watched *The Bounty*, then I watched the original from the '30s, and I with Clark Gable,
3: right? Clark Gable's in that one.
12: The original, yes. And I became obsessed with the whole story. Then I started reading about it, and uh, um, and then it just it, it expanded. I like I got that movie *Damn the Defiant*. Um, uh, Barry Lyndon. Um, and even the movie Waterloo. I just you know the whole the whole area. Well, that's expanding over a lot of time there. Um, you but, know, uh,
3: but I'm surprised at what you're saying, Peter, about the wax seal because I write letters with a wax seal, and I've never really heard a complaint that the post office does something to, uh, you know, that hinders the wax seal.
12: I, no, it's not that the post office does it. It's from what I've been told. It's the machine. Uh, can't handle the wax seal, and it will. It sometimes, if you use the wrong type of wax, it will slice it off, or slice it slice or it'll slice it open somehow. Oh, interesting. So I yeah. Never mailed it. Oh, yeah.
3: I mail it all the time, and I have not had that experience. So uh, maybe give it another, give it another go there, Peter. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Alex Barnard is here. Uh, hello, Alex. How are you? I'm good, Frank. How are you? Uh, good. Did you pick up a hobby during the pandemic?
14: Yeah, Peter's actually kind of reminded me. I. By going sort of going back in time, I did sort of my hobby was more like nostalgia going back to things that I liked doing when I was a kid and like rewatching a lot of shows, not necessarily like kids shows. But, for example, one of the shows that I loved when I was a kid was 24 with Kiefer Sutherland. When you were a kid? Didn't that show just air a few years ago? No, no. That was like, uh, what, two thousand. Eight. I was. I was maybe ten. And like oh, okay. Back then. Well, yeah, t- yeah, yeah. to me, 2008 Yeah, was right. Like yesterday. To that, okay. But um, and then the other one was uh, there was this great online game from when I was a kid called Toontown that I um was that I played a lot when I was a little kid that I started playing again.
3: Why those two um, activities
14: specifically, Toontown and Twenty Four? What made you pick them? I think it was more out of. I couldn't think of really much else to do at the time, but I remember seeing you know, the DVDs that I had at home of 24, and I was like, I haven't seen these in a couple years. And, and
3: so you'd already seen the series. You rewatched
14: it. Yes.
3: Okay. Yeah. 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 Exactly. See, I'm trying to com- give people ideas, and what I liked about uh, Peter's suggestion is that it's creative. It's different. I'm trying to give people ideas of hobbies that they might want to take up. That involve something other than watching television. No, nothing against television. There's some great shows on there. I've always said if I'm ever independently wealthy or unemployed, I'm spending a significant amount of time watching television. I carry a list of shows on my phone at all times that everyone has told me I would love that I've never seen one minute of one episode of. And look, really popular shows that everybody's seen. like Game of Thrones. I've never seen Game of Thrones or any of any of the shows like that, and I've always said that if I ever was unexpectedly out of work or independently wealthy, I'd spend a lot of time watching television. But I feel like there are like my uh, Matt's hobby of the bike riding, um, the my hobby of the roller skating, uh, Peter's hobby of the sending letters with wax seals. I'd love to give people some ideas of hobbies that they may want to pursue that are something other than just sitting on on the couch watching. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two
15: two. 800-848-9222. Al's in Manhattan. Hello. Good morning, Mr. Rand. How are you doing? Great. Thank uh, you. Yeah, so during this pandemic, I started to do uh, combining uh, mountaineering with uh, DJing, and it's working out really good. Well, I, so. I, I miss that, Al. Mountaineering? Mountaineering and uh, DJing. I'm doing both at uh, once. In fact, I'm calling you. Uh, I'm at base camp right here. We're 18,000 feet up. And we're having, for the Sherpas, uh, Sherpa Reggaeton 22, and uh, they're loving it, you know? So the two things together, wow. you know, I'm getting my, my uh, exercises in, and uh, I'm just tired of eating ramen. Well, that's ramen, great. Ramen, hey, ramen. What
3: mountain are you at now, Al?
15: I'm at a 2 It's right across from Everest. It's actually a harder climb. Wow. Is that He's been true? There for six weeks.
4: That's great. Uh,
15: and but, but, but ramen, ramen every day. curry Ramen. And they love uh the reruns, Andy Griffith, and for some reason Miami Vice. I wow. can figure it out for yeah. now. Well that's terrific. Uh, so well, how are the elections going on back there? I started out at Toad Hill. That was my first ascent and I worked my way up, you know. Yeah. And, uh, well, as I far as the elections the
3: out here, not a lot of uh not a lot of surprises uh, out here. you know, uh Nadler won, uh Charlie Crist won, um and uh Pat Ryan won. Tom,
15: Tom this, this was the uh, replacement. Uh, was uh, Robert
3: one? Zimmerman won for the Swazi oh, seat.
15: Oh, cool. Listen, everything's okay. Uh, uh, little uh, Carmine's okay. Everybody. Everybody's great. Thank you, Al. Appreciate it. Good to hear it. it. Keep Thank you. Great show. Thanks. Appreciate
3: it. 800-848-9222. How's that for a hobby? Mountaineering. Wow. Hmm. All right. All right. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Uh, This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. If you ever want to know what kind of music we play on the show as bumper music, we're going to have some good ones today. Uh, Just uh, join our Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. It's also meant to be a, a platform for people to give their opinions about the things that are happening on this show. I'll tell you what my lifelong hobby is, right? This is unintentional. It's double booking myself because I have an inability to say no to anybody and I just commit to everything. Right. And it's gotten me in a great deal of trouble my whole life. It's just if I ever get jammed up, uh, you know, in terms of a prison sentence or something like that, it will be because I nodded at the wrong time. And that'll somehow be a conspiracy indictment somehow. Now, one of the things that I agreed to do was on Saturday I agreed to go to this event for Sid Rosenberg's book at my favorite restaurant in 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 America, quite frankly, Michael's of Brooklyn. So um, my wife also agreed to participate in a neighbor's party, sort of a half-block party. And obviously I have to do my part in terms of grilling and serving people and participating and in the revelry of the party. So I'm, at the moment, double-booked, for this neighbor's party. So yesterday, a friend of mine comes over the house, hadn't seen him in a while. We're talking and uh, chatting and everything. We're catching up. And he's asking me about Sid Rosenberg. And I say, yeah, but, you know, Sid's doing uh, this uh, book signing or this book event at Michael's of Brooklyn on Saturday. And my wife, who had not been paying any attention to what we were talking about, she stops. She says, well, wait a minute. You're not going to that, are you? And I said, well, I don't know. Maybe. And Rachel says to me, what time is it? And I said, I'm not sure. She says, because we have this neighbor's party at 1. It's going to be a couple hours. You've got to be here. So I said, just during the commercial, in the last minute or so, I said, let me see what time this Michaels of Brooklyn thing is. Because nobody has told me. So I go on to Sid Rosenberg's Twitter, and I find the following tweets from over a week ago. This is from... August 9th, the last tweet about this, says, in words, it says, precisely, Hey, citizens, can't wait to see you on Saturday, August 27th, at the amazing Michaels of Brooklyn for our first Citizens United book signing. It's a chance to meet me, get a new book autographed by me, and enjoy fantastic food. Call, and he gives the phone number, and reserve your spot today. Now, what's missing from this? What time this thing is? So how are people going to know if they want to go to this or not if Sid doesn't list the time? So when he gets here in a few hours, I'm going to try to pin him down for what time this is. I'd like to try and do both. And then uh, maybe I'll bring young Carmine with me to Michael's after mm-hmm. the neighbor's party, and he can he can meet people as well because that is a great place to go. And I, and I do want to support Sid with his book and everything. But uh, I'll tell you what we're looking forward to doing the following week, um, Labor Day weekend. Do we know if Labor Day is a holiday for, uh, for the company? It is? Okay. But what I'm looking forward to doing the, the following weekend is returning with Carmine and Rachel, Carmine William O'Brien and, uh, excuse me, Carmine William Morano and, uh, and Rachel to Atlantic City, New Jersey. I'm very much looking forward to bringing Carmine back. Last time we went... I w- did very well. I'm hoping that luck stays with us this time around as well. So uh, if anybody's uh, around the weekend of uh, Labor Day, perhaps I'll run into you along the boardwalk somewhere. All right. Uh, Coming up a little later, we're going to talk to the great cousin, Brucey, but first let me say hello to Alan in Orange County. Hello, Alan.
5: Hey, Frank. How are you? Great. Okay. So during the pandemic, uh, my I started my hobby of investing in stocks and cryptocurrencies. How'd you do? Um, well, I'm up about three or four thousand right now. Um, I'm I'm really poised for uh, some big gains if all the stuff starts going up. Uh, and I did a lot of research before I bought each one, and continued to just watch what they did. Um, Robinhood made all that possible because it's, it, you know, you could almost get it in real time, uh, what's going on with the prices. Well, that, that, and, that's great. Uh, I, you know, I really enjoy, um, you know, doing the research on the companies and seeing where they started and who owns them and all, you know, all the other, how many employees they have. And, uh, it, you know, it really, uh, it really got me interested because I've dabbled in stocks before but many, many, many years ago with mixed results.
3: Uh, Alan, uh, thank you. I got, I got to run. I, I'm glad that's going well for you. Help control the pet population. Get your, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
3: Well, good news for all, most of all for me, we have uh, tracked down Anya Kamenetz, uh, the author of the book The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. Now, uh, Anya is an education correspondent for NPR. She's contributed to the New York Times, the Washington Post, New York Magazine, a whole bunch of other publications. She's won many awards for her reporting on uh, education, technology, and uh, innovation. She's written some other books before. But uh, this book, The Stolen Year, is really fascinating. It's not only fascinating because it's so current and deals with an issue that I think a lot of people feel pretty strongly about, but it's really so interesting because of the way that it blends data and analysis and uh, statistically looking at what happened in the country economically, culturally, in every different aspect of life with profiles of individual people and individual families. So it kind of puts a human face on some of the the numbers. And uh, you realize that when we talk about uh, this statistic or that statistic, there are people behind those statistics. So I'm just thrilled to welcome uh, Anya Kamenetz uh, back, well, not back, but to our show. Anya, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So um, I guess the big question and the big complaint that a lot of parents had during covid, particularly parents that were concerned about uh, child care. But this was also a complaint that was echoed by a lot of teachers and administrators and certainly a lot of students was um, did we did we have to do this? Um, a lot of folks that were in. Um, public health positions at the time, they said that this was the best way to contain the spread and to stop the spread and not have children and teachers be in um, quarters that weren't equipped to handle a uh, a very, very tough disease like this. Based on your research, did we do the right thing in closing down schools? So schools shut
0: down all over the world And for the most part, in the spring of 2020, that was not a controversial decision. So, Frank, what I'm really questioning in the book is our decision to leave them closed and leave so many kids home for such a long time, which really was unique in the United States. We really resembled more developing countries, you know, countries like the Philippines, like India, that are just now getting their kids back in school. We weren't quite that bad. But in our blue states, we had, you know, more than half of our kids home through the spring of 2021. And... I don't think that was necessary. I think that if you look at our peer countries in Europe, even when they had pretty bad surges of this virus, they prioritized schools and they did what it took to keep schools open safely. And in our country in red states, you know they didn't always follow the same safety protocols, but they did take the risk to keep schools open. and even though you know they may have had in some cases worse cases of the virus, they didn't end up in the in the end with worse death rates. And so I believe... They, I'm sorry, done,
3: they did or did not, you said?
0: So the way that it was set up in places like Florida, places like Texas, sometimes they had outbreaks connected to public schools because they didn't necessarily follow the masking. But in the lot, when you look at the overall state death rates, the death rates per capita, it doesn't stand out to see those states. They don't have a clear correlation between open schools and more cases of virus, more people dying from the virus. So... so All said and done, we could have prioritized schools for opening Mm.
3: sooner. So a state like California, uh, which had very strict lockdown protocols and was one of these states that uh, delayed reopening in a lot of the larger cities, the numbers weren't significantly better in terms of deaths, at least not COVID deaths that could be traced to public schools. Um, They weren't significantly better than in a state like Florida, which took a much more liberal attitude.
0: That's exactly right. And that's why all of us who look at this situation need to have some humility, right? Mm. Because this virus kept changing and it it really outwitted so many of our attempts to stop it.
3: Why, Why did... So many uh, experts, and and I think people were very well-intentioned. I don't don't think anybody really wanted to keep schools closed and inconvenience children and inconvenience teachers. Why did so many public health officials and elected officials in particularly blue cities and blue states, why did they keep schools uh, closed for as long as they did?
0: I think schools really got caught up in a very complicated political um, you know, alignment because it was the Republicans, it was the federal leadership, um, President Trump, who really called for reopening schools, but not necessarily with protections. And so that really became um, a very strong statement that a lot of people reacted against politically they didn't they didn't listen to trump they didn't trust Trump, and then on the other side, you obviously had you know unions you had um, many communities of color that were a lot more cautious, a lot more hesitant and between those two polls, it was very few leaders. There's a few state leaders. Um, in uh, Rhode Island, Governor Raimondo and Governor Lamont in Connecticut, who really stood up to their schools, their schools leadership, and said, "Yes, we're going to do this." But in so many other places, people were kind of caught in the middle, and in the mushy middle, that's where a lot of kids really got let down.
3: And right. uh, now that well, that's really. Disappointing. We're talking with uh, Anya Kamenetz. She's the author of the book uh, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. So it it was a combination of, one, because Trump said it, uh, his political adversaries didn't want to go along with it, and also the, the strength in a lot of communities, New York, for instance, of the teachers union not wanting to reopen prematurely.
0: Yeah, I mean, New York is an interesting case because of the top 10 biggest uh, school districts in blue blue cities, um, we really were stronger. I'm in New York. We really were stronger in terms of saying we were going to open, trying really hard to reopen. And yet when all was said and done, we delayed opening twice in the fall of 2020. Mm. We shut down in November 2020. And only about a third of the kids actually came back to school because it was so confusing and it wasn't really meeting the needs of families.
3: I think – you look at um, every aspect of society crime, drug use, alcoholism, depression, anxiety, uh, many different financial aspects of uh, of society. It seems like the pandemic and the lockdowns were bad for everybody, bad for the whole country, especially you know adults in a lot of different communities. Why was the pandemic particularly harmful? for children?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So schools are a major piece of social infrastructure for families. They feed 30 million kids, right? So when schools shut down, uh, many, many kids actually went hungry in the first couple of months. And without the structure of school, the safe place to be during the day, a lot of kids were in physical danger and they were without their um, access to their their services that they needed kids you know the 14 percent of kids who have disabilities weren't getting those services that that therapy and uh, that intervention that was really really difficult and then obviously besides the academic struggles we saw that a lot of kids experience a loss of meaning and hope and social connection that's leading to what um, pediatricians call you know uh, an emergency which is uh, child mental health well, one
3: of the things that we heard reported at the time was that there were fewer instances of child abuse being reported, and not because there were fewer children being abused, but because there weren't teachers or adults in school in a position to observe a lot of the warning signs of child abuse. How big a problem was that?
0: Well, wow, it's a really, really difficult question because, um, yes, I think that there is, you know, it, The way that child abuse is, first of all, reported in our society is extremely complex. We have all of these mandatory reporters, and yet most of the families that get flagged for social services, it's really because of neglect, which is oftentimes an offshoot of poverty. So we have to think about why is it so much harder to help a family, give that family the help they need versus remove a child. That said, there's certainly reason to be concerned about the amount of gun violence that's increased in communities as well as in homes. And one of the um, scary anecdotes that I reported on um, in the book is a, a young child from a very large family of eight siblings in St. Louis. And when schools and daycares were closed, he wandered away from his home and climbed into a window of a vacant building and was shot in the leg.
3: Oh, jeez, uh, Yeah, no, it's just uh, it's just terrible. Now, um, as far as the social aspect of school goes now, we've seen the corporate environment, the business world move increasingly into a remote communication era. A lot of businesses are still either fully remote or partially remote with things that were routinely in person staff meetings are routinely done by Zoom. A lot of folks may say, well, look, uh, if um, if adults are moving in this direction, maybe it's not the worst idea in the world for children to get acclimated to things like remote learning and uh, connecting with students and teachers and guidance counselors and whomever in a remote environment. Why is that social aspect of schools interacting with with peers and other adults in person? Why is that so important? And why did that play such a deleterious role in child development over the lockdown?
0: Yeah, that's such a great question. So, you know, I'm not a Luddite. I think that software has a role to play in kids learning. I think that for high school kids, for example, picking up a few credits online while they also do internships and and work in the community can be great. But Overall, the way the kids learn is social. They learn through relationships, their relationships with peers and with caring adults. And that's what people felt so cut off from, and it was so detrimental. I also want to put out a word to this the physical aspects of learning. I mean, our kids, um when they're developing, they really need to move around. And the enforced physical um, inactivity was really, really awful. And we saw um, a giant increase, a seventy seven percent increase recently reported in type 2 diabetes for young kids. Um, in the first year of the pandemic. And I think that's really tied to the fact that we weren't giving kids their typical outlets, even just walking to school.
3: You write in the uh, chapter on the book in uh, that concerns mental health and children's mental health specifically, that you could have written about that at any point in the book, but there's some evidence of a tipping point in child mental health after we passed six solid months of the pandemic and after we started to... Leave the relatively lower case numbers of the summer behind. And it really set in for young people that another disrupted school year was ahead. What what happened at the six month mark? And uh, what did all this mean for child mental health?
0: Yeah, I mean, I just heard from a lot of people that heading into the second school year was when it really started to sink in. That this was not going to be um, a one and done. And, you know, one of the kids um, I spoke with was a 10-year-old in Oklahoma who was like, you know, I can get through this year, but I can't do it again next year. And it was that loss of sort of hope in the future that really made it hard on kids. But honestly, I have to say that kids' mental health has deteriorated throughout the last school year and, and even uh, still today as it starts to sink in just what happened, what they lost and what they might never get back. So I'm, I'm still hearing from kids, and I heard mm. from one of the families in the book um, recently that you know, that the child's mental health has continued to deteriorate even after we, we stopped talking.
3: And, and that means a lot more than just uh, children are feeling blue. That leads to things that are very serious, like clinical depression, suicide, and uh, eating disorders, and I imagine a lot of other uh, very negative effects on a child's behavior, right?
0: Yeah, you named a lot of the really big ones. Um, certainly anxiety, um, you know, kind of crippling anxiety and, and social anxiety. So we're seeing also with kids coming back to school that they don't have the same tools for interacting with their peers. They're kind of, um, you know, behind in their social development. And that's something that's, you know, it's going to take time. It, it's not like this is all remediable. Uh, kids are, you know, very responsive to mental health intervention. but. Um, definitely needs to be caught early.
3: Well, what does that mean for drug and alcohol use among young people that dealt with the mental health effects of the shutdown?
0: So in the early days of lockdown, um, kids didn't have as much access to drugs and alcohol, so we didn't see those kinds of trends. I think the addiction um, potential is definitely there, and it's something we expect to see developing, especially since you know nationwide there's been um, an overdose crisis, right, with fentanyl. There's also been increased drinking that a lot of adults, including parents, reported. So um, the idea that this is going to spill over into use is is very very present.
3: If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Anya uh, Kamenetz. She is the author of the book, The Stolen Year, How COVID uh, Changed Children's Lives. Anya, in the book, you profile a boy with autism in San Francisco. What is the pandemic and what are the lockdowns like for somebody, a young person suffering with something like autism during the pandemic?
0: I mean, autism has a lot of different manifestations for Jonah. Um, being on a screen was really disastrous for him. And there's a lot of kids with autism and ADHD, which he also had, that have a lot of trouble getting off the screens in normal times. And so to put school on a screen um, was just inviting him to become obsessed with YouTube, with video games, and honestly becoming violent and explosive when his parents tried to get him to focus on school itself. So it really became a daily battle of, of violent outbursts, of tantrums and of tears. Um, and you know, so, so hard for his entire family to try to remain positive when uh, nothing that he enjoyed in his life was available to him anymore.
3: It's certainly not inconceivable to me, and I think a lot of folks— That if you're a child that is from a a wealthier family or an upper middle class family, you might have more experience dealing with high end electronic devices than someone that's on a, a lower socioeconomic rung. And maybe that makes using some of the technology that's necessary for remote learning more difficult and maybe more of a learning curve there. Were poorer families having a tougher time with remote learning and all the aspects of the lockdown because they weren't as equipped with the the technological tools necessary for it.
0: Absolutely both in cities and in rural areas there was a lack of broadband and a lack of equipment. I mean, this is an area where schools definitely worked hard to try to step to step up and give out those hotspots and those laptops um oftentimes you know without a lot of help but There were still um, many, many times where um, families were not able to sign on. There's a recent report that just came out showing chronic absenteeism, um, meaning being gone more than 10% of the time, was at 70%, that's 7 out of 10 kids in Detroit in the 2020-2021 school year. And most of the time, 4 out of 10 of the time, the family said it was computer problems. Mm. We couldn't get online because we had computer problems. And that was, you know, well into the full school year of the
3: pandemic in cities like New York. I know it's not unusual for many of the children in public schools to get both breakfast and lunch in school for free. And a lot of proponents of those programs have said that's been a game changer in terms of reducing child hunger. And uh, with nobody in school, I would think it was a lot more difficult for those children to get breakfast and lunch. What sort of effect did these lockdowns have on hunger.
0: This is really shocking. So hunger researchers told me that the number of families who said, my child's not getting enough to eat, my child's going to bed hungry, was at levels that they as researchers had never seen before. This is in April and May 2020. Um, You know, 17.5% of families of young children saying my child's not getting enough to eat. Typically, families starve themselves. They skip meals so that their kids have enough to eat. And I just heard from parents who were spending hours standing in line at food pantries, both in New York and in San Francisco. I talked to them. And uh, also in D.C., um, organizing food giveaways. And you could spend your whole day doing that and still not have enough. And that was really the acute nature of this crisis. And, you know, that has lingering effects. Hunger mm. has lingering effects mentally and as well as physically on kids, even when it doesn't last that long.
3: What did families – I remember when I was a public school student in New York as a child, both of my parents worked, and whenever there would be snow, I would be praying for a snow day, and both of my parents <laughs> would be praying that there was no snow day because they wouldn't know what to do in terms of child care if I wasn't in school all day. I have to think there's a lot of public school parents all over the country that are similarly situated. What did people that relied on schools for child care – do all of a sudden when that lifeline was cut off?
0: Yeah, I mean, they did a lot of things, right? So if they were lucky enough to have a a grandparent, a family member to combine households, there were a lot of people that did that. Obviously, we know if you were able to work from home, you had the classic kid busting in in your Zoom meeting or or kids sitting on the laptop or on the, the screens all day while you tried to work. Um for families that had essential jobs, they had a much harder time. And that's why, um, you know, again, I, I profiled Heather in St. Louis, who was actually admitted that she locked the door on her kids. That was what she had to resort to wow. to get to her job at a homeless shelter. And wow. we just we don't want to see that happening in the United States.
3: No, absolutely not. So um, given your your chronicling of everything that went on here, uh, the education problems, the child care problems, the hunger problems, uh, every aspect, mental health, every aspect of youth development that was not just put on hold for a year, but uh, significantly impacted far beyond uh, the the stolen year. Um, through the prism of hindsight, what should our leaders have done? What should we have done as a country? And for the next pandemic, whether it's a year from now, 10 years from now or 100 years from now, What should future leaders do when they're faced with a a similarly serious pandemic?
0: So this pandemic was unique in the way that it was so much milder for kids, right? So if we were faced with a pandemic like polio that was basically affecting kids first and foremost, you might go back and do some of the same restrictions. But given the risk profile, similar to COVID-19, we really needed everyone in society to say, you know what, we're going to make the sacrifice On the business side, we're going to close bars. We're going to close restaurants so that schools can stay open, so that childcare can stay open, so that kids never again get deprived of these basic services that they need so much.
3: Um, In um, Reason magazine, which is obviously a a very libertarian magazine, they did a review of your book, which was mostly positive, I I think, because it fits with a lot of the libertarian agenda, which is uh, that everything should have stayed open this entire time. They do take issue a little bit with you um, not holding anyone responsible in your view. Is that a fair criticism? Do you think um, Americans have a right to hold the leaders that made these decisions to keep schools closed responsible and view them negatively because of their actions?
0: Um, I think people always have a right to hold their elected officials accountable. The point that I was trying to make in the book is that schools are a very complex institution, and it takes literally millions of people to keep them open. And so... It's not a simple story. So the idea that Trump, you know, Trump is not the person responsible for closing schools. He called for opening schools. He didn't give them the resources that they needed. Our mayor in New York City, Bill de Blasio, he called for opening schools, but he was not able to accomplish that goal. Um, Teachers, you know, many of whom protested schools opening, but when schools opened, they went to work anyway. So I I just don't see a simple narrative or a Mm. simple, easy villain. And if I had, I would have pointed the finger at them, but I just don't see it that way.
3: Uh, lastly, Anya, and um, I want to encourage people to check out this book, the, uh, the Stolen Year, one of the issues that also became very politicized even once schools were reopened was the issue of uh, of masking, uh, particularly for students. Some people complained that uh, this hurt everything from uh, speech pathology to uh, teaching students how to read facial expressions and that the science in terms of uh, uh, child transmission of the disease while masked or unmasked was um, not necessarily definitive in terms of making a case for why children should have been masked. Uh, What's your take on masking in schools, particularly among children?
0: I think that it changed because the virus changed and because we got vaccines. So when when we went back to school in 2020, masking absolutely made a lot of sense. Um, And as the virus mutated, it became so much more transmissible. Cloth masks really weren't doing very much. The surgical masks even weren't doing that much. And so we were faced with a choice, which is, do we move up to the KF94s? Do we try to put every single kid in a surgical mask and run our schools like a hospital ward? Or do we try to restore some normalcy given that almost all of our kids have had COVID already and we do have vaccines available? And I think that I'm not one, you know, public health experts who were honest about it moved in their position because, you know, the other simple calculus was, this is a third school year that we're heading into. Are we going to keep kids masked forever? My child's in kindergarten. You know, she took off her mask in April. That was the first time she'd mm. gone to school without a mask on. So, you know, again, this is a a situation that's complicated. It changes, and people who are honest about it and look at the data need to update their positions as well.
3: Uh, you know, one of the thing the reason one of the reasons I ask is because Philadelphia is planning to have mandatory masks at the beginning of their school year, and the parents. Yeah are up in arms the school boards in philadelphia are getting an air an earful from uh, yeah. from parents that say this kind of a policy to start the school year is totally out of touch it sounds like you might agree with those parents
0: well i sympathize with parents who feel that their children are the only ones being subjected to these guidelines you know if you can go to a sporting event or a mall in philadelphia without a mask on or a restaurant or a bar right. why is it that our little kids in school are the only ones that have to do this
3: Well, Anya, I want to commend you on uh, just a tremendously researched book and uh, not only a book that's really well researched, but uh, a book that really does a tremendous job putting a human face on the cost of uh, the lockdowns that we all endured uh, over the course of the COVID pandemic. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for being on with us at a tough hour. Appreciate it very much.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for your interest. Thank you.
3: If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
9: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So, why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's
1: the other side of midnight with Frank Frank Morano.
3: The Duprees singing "You Belong to Me." Uh, we're trying to have some uh, good throwback tunes. We are going to include some uh, more modern tunes as well, but uh, we are trying to incorporate as many songs as as possible that you might hear on a typical broadcast that is done by the one and only Bruce. He will join us about an hour from now uh, to talk about his illustrious broadcasting career. And I'm very much looking forward to that interview. 800 848 If you want to comment on uh, any of my discussion with uh, Anya Kamenetz, and uh, you're certainly welcome to comment on anything else we've covered thus far. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 848 Jeff is on Staten Island. Hello, Jeff.
16: Hey, Frank. How are you?
2: Uh,
3: making a living.
16: Uh, <laughs> that's what we're all trying to do. Mm-hmm. I went to the first say I met you at um the Staten Island Yankee game uh through the uh through the fence and I was always curious cuz I don't know if you had comments on what I happened to the guy that got hit with the baseball in the face at the end of the game. Yeah, on, uh, on I,
3: the... I mean uh, my understanding is I I don't really I don't really know. I mean, I think he was fine. I, I think Curtis talked okay. about it. Uh, over the weekend, but uh, yeah, if people don't know what Jeff is talking about, we had this um, charity softball game, and uh, the person that won the contest to coach first base, a listener, a retired cop, very nice guy, I believe his name was Kevin. He, um, at Curtis had to leave the game due to an injury. He was playing second base, and that guy went in to play second base for in, in Curtis' stead. And the guy was a super nice guy, and he was clearly a big fan of um, WABC, and he wanted to play. And then he got drilled in the face, lost consciousness briefly, lost a couple of teeth. His wife, um, thankfully, was a nurse. She came out and uh, supervised his care, and Uh, everybody was obviously very concerned, but my understanding is, um, you know, he was just fine, but uh, I I have not heard anything um, in detail about that. I stand to be corrected if there was something
16: more to that. All right, I was concerned. It was was a scary moment. Ah, I was standing
3: right there, absolutely. and uh, Yeah, uh, no, uh, 100%, absolutely.
16: Anyway, I'm a New York City public high school teacher on Staten Island, and I feel that we let these kids down. And one of the things that's going on now, now you just mentioned Philadelphia, also in Newark, they're um, making these poor kids wear masks again. And as I'm reading about it, I'm saying, yeah, who's deciding this? And again, I think it's the union that's a a big pusher of this. And ultimately, look, we don't want teachers to die. We don't want teachers to get sick. But as a New York City high school teacher, you know, my union told me what to do. It's not like my union asked my opinion. I because I wanted to go back. And in in that second year, anyway, you know the twenty uh, sure. twenty, um, yeah. But anyway, you know, if we're looking for a bad guy, I'm going to say we let. I tell people all the time we let people down, and ultimately, yeah, this blame could go everywhere to Trump, to um, to De Blasio, and and but, and, and, and as the uh, author said, it was a very complicated situation. But, but I but feel uh, certainly it's interesting those
3: out. two people that you just cited, and, and you know, I've certainly been critical of both of them from from time to time particularly de blasio but trump and de blasio the one thing that they seem to have in common is that by 2021 uh, or even really towards the end of 2020 the the fall of that school year they wanted schools reopened i mean so so yes, I, I don't know that those yes. are the right villains in terms of uh,
16: right. of exactly. reopening exactly. you know
3: uh hey yeah. jeff thanks for the call it was uh it was good to meet you i hope i was nice and not rude
16: you you were you were fine. I, I was, wished I was out there with you guys, but then I might have got hit in the face.
3: Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. You you were safe where you were. 800-848-9222. Mostriano is in the Bronx. Hello, Mostriano.
7: Hey. Hello, Greg. Thanks for taking the call. It's actually Frank. Um, uh, Frank, I'm sorry. Frank. Well, you know, a hobby that I had starting with COVID is because I was watching my kids, being that I was unemployed, and because of COVID, I started doing coloring books. And it's interesting. I did these coloring books and uh, with the kids, and then it became my hobby, something I enjoyed. And then I found out that there's a lot of Americans that actually enjoy coloring books, adult coloring books, and they do that, so I feel comfortable coloring. I don't do the kids coloring books. I do more like buildings, and actually I'm also Alex from Brooklyn.
5: Wait, wait. What, so what, what, I, what was from Brooklyn?
7: another hobby is calling in. Alex from Brooklyn oh, you're and Alex I have from another Brooklyn. hobby calling into radio program. Oh, very nice. Hobby. Thank you, uh,
3: Mostriano slash Alex from Brooklyn. Yeah, in terms of the um, adult coloring books, my mother-in-law is very into that. So I don't know if um, Alex from Brooklyn was being sincere that he picked that up as a hobby during the pandemic. But I know a lot of people that uh, find that whole thing very soothing. So uh, I think that uh, a lot of people might consider that as a hobby. Find it relaxing. Um, it's not for me. Not for me. I don't know why. It's not for me. But again, my mother-in-law, she loves that. Ron is on Staten Island. Hello, Ron. Hello,
5: hey, well, hey um, Frank. So you should have Alex Jones on if you're going to
7: diversify and you want other broadcasters to have re- Republicans on their program. And I'm Alex from Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> how did, you get, how did you get on two I'm lines? How did you get on
3: two lines simultaneously? Be-
7: uh, I guess I use two phones, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm just because of last week you were talking about this, how people, you know, get onto the program again. I just had to do it. I'm not going to do it again. Hey, do okay.
3: it. yeah, thanks, Alex. Um, that's something. He and Steve from Manhattan should do a talk radio caller clinic, you know, uh, either that or uh, either that or we should send Kenneth to wherever Avery is this week, you know. Hey, um, real quick, um, my uncle Steve, great guy, wonderful guy. He my godfather, right? Somebody um very close to, also happens to live in our neighborhood. He was the one that did the ear candling on Friday that I was telling you about. And um he has been he's had a very rough time. I don't want to get into I don't want to get into it because it's it's very sad to talk about, but he has had a lot of uh loss. His wife passed away after a very long illness. His uh, stepson, who you know, he who he essentially raised died very tragically. He's had some problems with the law, and um, his partner, his business partner, just passed away after a, a lengthy illness who was a very close friend of his. He's had a really tough time. He's had a lot of sadness in his life over the last uh, few years, especially since his wife died three years ago. So my Uncle Steve is has been desperate for the last three years to meet somebody, right? He wants somebody because he's lonely. He says he's tired of uh, coming home to an empty house. He got not one cat, not two cats. I think he actually has three cats now because he was just so lonely. And he gets very into and he's just eager to go out on dates with with women. So sometimes he'll meet women in his real life, you know, and trying to ask them out or he'll meet women on Facebook or wherever else. And he gets a lot of dates with a lot of very beautiful women. And because he's so lonely, he always does the same thing, right? He always comes on way too strong. And uh, by their first date, second date, third date, he's already talking about marriage and moving in together. Either that or he's buying all sorts of lavish gifts. Take And, you know, he makes a good living, but he's not exactly flush with cash. He is, uh, you know, buying them all sorts of gifts or having their kitchen remodeled early on in their relationship. And so one of the things that my wife and I have observed with him doing this is one of two things happens with the women that he's dating. One, the women either get turned off because he's coming on too strong And they get freaked out because they're just in the getting to know you phase. And he's already talking about marriage and all things like that. Or women will try to take advantage of him because they see how he's spending money and all things like that. So anyway, last week, and this is really personal, right? So I hope uh, he doesn't mind me sharing this, but he's the kind of guy, his life's an open book, right? Um, And last week. He goes on a date with this woman who he meets online. And she's a, she's a widow, uh, four children. And she's a Filipino, and she's in the country legally, but not an American citizen. She has a green card and everything. though. She's a widow and um, she lives in Queens. Goes on a date with her, right? On their first date, he takes a picture of the two of them. Posts it on Facebook and says, um, today I met the woman that I'm going to marry and posts this for the world to see. Now, I see this and, um, you know, I think my mom sees this, Rachel sees this, and we collectively all hit our heads at the same time, meaning this is a little too much too soon. First date announcing to the world, I met the woman that I'm going to marry. Yeah, no, this is what he said. I met my future wife tonight. We are at, and then he mentions the restaurant that they went to, so happy. So then he's seen her a bunch of times since then. This is all in the last 10 days, 10 days. And he's met the kids, met her sister, and he is determined to marry this woman. Determine. last weekend he went out shopping for engagement ring now um those of us that are related to him have cautioned him to whoa let's put the brakes on things here a little bit and slow things down a little bit and i think that's still a very sound philosophy and i've said to him this no interest in hearing this. No interest in hearing this. Essentially, he says, you know, I, uh, I'm i tired of being alone, tired of being lonely. Uh, I love this woman. You know, I think she loves me. We have a connection. And I really think that this is, you know, the best move for for both of us. And I still haven't met this woman. My wife only met her for 40 seconds before she passed out in the nail salon on, uh, on Saturday. But um, I certainly concerned that he is being going to be taken advantage of. Now, I'm certainly going to urge him that if they do end up getting married to get a prenuptial agreement or something like that. But um, my dad, who is my uncle's former brother-in-law, obviously, he was telling me on Sunday when we were over there, my dad is telling me he thinks this is great. He thinks it's a wonderful thing for him. Uh, he's got essentially really nothing left to um, to lose in terms of his life, and he is hopeful that this works out. I mean, we're all hopeful that this works out, but my dad was a little bit more enthused uh, that this is going to be a positive thing for him. And I'm curious beyond the prenup, which I think is important because again, it's not like my uncle's super wealthy, but he's got a house and a business and everything. Beyond the prenup. What should those of us that love my uncle be telling him here? Because one, we don't want to see him brokenhearted if this woman takes advantage of him or anything along those lines. And two, we don't want to see him destitute if, uh, you know, they get divorced in three years and he, um, you know, and, and he ends up giving giving her all his money and property. So I... Um, I don't know what else to say to him. You know, I'm happy for him and I'm encouraging, you know, him to pursue this relationship. But I don't know. I mean, it just is a very odd situation. Very odd situation. So I'm curious if anybody in your life has ever dealt with something like this, a loved one, a friend, a family member. And what advice you've offered them? Not that he's going to listen, but I'd at least like to offer it. Well, maybe I should say nothing. I mean, what do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 848 9222 That's uh, 800-848-9222. Uh, Fugazi Tom is in uh, the Bronx. Fugazi Tom, you're not actually Alex in Brooklyn, are you? No. Okay, good. All right, so what's on your mind?
5: <laughs> you know me by my voice. Okay, that is so dangerous, you know. It's dangerous for him and her, you know, when you give an impression that you're so rich, you know, that's bad. And is he the kind of guy that can hold his temper down if he just sees a woman that's just taking advantage of him like that, you know what I'm saying? And maybe starting to steal a little bit. Can he keep his composure and not, you know, go crazy on her? And how about church? Why don't go to church and try to meet some women? Yeah, well, look, I
3: I don't know. Um, he doesn't attend church regularly. He came to uh, he came to Carmine Williams' baptism, but he's not a regular uh, church goer. But uh, that's certainly a good suggestion. Uh, certainly a good suggestion. 800-848-9222. Jeffries in
9: Queens. Hello, Jeffrey.
17: Hey, Frank. Hi. Yeah, I mean the main thing is you got to make sure she's not playing, as the expression goes, playing him. She's not taking advantage. She's not scheming. She doesn't have designs. I mean, you you got to sit him down and tell him. He's got to make sure she's not guilty of any of those things, right?
3: So how do you do that, right? So clearly he sees – he's seeing the world through rose-colored glasses at at the moment. So let's say
17: uh, – Well, you remind him, Frank, that there are people who mail-order brides in this world. They'll mm -hmm. get – after they marry you, they'll kill you, right?
3: Yeah. Well, and what if he says, I don't think, you know, she's a mail-order bride? That's the
17: the worst. She's not a mail-order bride, but she's not – she might – Okay, but we're back to other criteria, things like uh, use, using him. All right, the, the, the prenup—that's obviously a, a good starting point. Mm-hmm. Okay, he he better do that.
3: Okay, and then anything else beyond that that uh, those of us that are p- family members of his should stress.
17: Yeah, he has to know what love. He has to know that she loves him. Well, that she really, she's. For, I'm just repeating myself, right? That she's for real and right. right? not faking it. All right. Well, thank you. Right. Thank you, Jeffrey.
3: Any other suggestions? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight.
1: Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. midnight.
0: Bruno, he's your numero Uno.
1: It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
14: You got me sipping on something I can't compare to nothing I've ever known him home. That after this fever, I'll survive. I know I'm acting a bit crazy. Strung out a little bit hazy. Hand over heart, I'm praying. That I'm gonna make it out alive. The great Selena Gomez,
3: who I am now a big fan of. Um, she's singing, the heart wants what it wants, right? That is certainly true of um, of my Uncle Steve, who insists he is going to marry this woman that he met 11 days ago. And uh, this comes as a great deal of concern to those of us that uh, want the best for him. But obviously, you know. We um, recognize the fact that he's adult. And he's an adult, number one, and that he's lonely. Number two, what can you do? 800-848-9222. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 848 9222 Jerry is in Queens. Hello, Jerry.
6: Hello. Good morning. How is everything going?
3: Not too bad, Jerry. Thanks. Okay.
6: Tell me, how old is your uncle? A 60. 60. Okay. I had a friend uh, whose uh, the wife died, and uh, she was sick her entire life. And uh, he was very lonely. Uh, Jerry, I can't live without a woman. I, I'm very lonely. I need companionship. So he went on Catholic Match, which is a you know a website, CatholicMatch dot com slash my New York, and he met a very lovely woman, a widow, and uh, they dated, they courted, and uh, the family included her in a lot of their activities. And I'm suggesting that do a double date with uh, your uncle and his lady friend and um have you uh, has the family met the four children
3: no and he's he met he's met them but uh but no but, i haven't
6: oh well the, the family before they can be so critical they must somehow arrange a couple of family get-togethers a picnic or something labor day's coming up so that you get a feel for who she actually is and you must meet those children, and if she 's serious about your uncle, she would have absolutely no objection to bringing her children.
3: yeah, well, again, I think the children are older. I think three of them are are in college, uh, and one I believe may either lives in the Philippines or lives in California, but they 're all essentially adult children between the ages of eighteen. And uh, and twenty five, um, but uh, sure, yeah, we'd like to to meet them as well. It's all part of the process of getting to know someone, which a lot of us feel like is going a little too fast here. That ultimately, it's his life; he's going to have to make his own decisions. But we obviously nobody wants to see him get hurt. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Terry is in Flatbush. Hello, Terry.
8: Yeah, Greg. Good morning. Um, yeah, it's actually Frank. Woman- Terry. Oh boy! As a religious woman uh, and a Jewish woman, we do things within like three weeks. All right, thank uh, you, thank you,
3: Alex. That's still that's Alex just from Brooklyn. Call me Frank. Still, Kenneth, you're not having a great night tonight. This is uh, this is worse than that day that took you 14 hours to get the podcast up correctly. Youth. All right. Uh, what will Alex in Brooklyn say next? There's no telling. Now, what a Mama uh, I saw um, I saw some good news um, yesterday, which is that Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I think is just the, uh, the greatest show, the funniest show on television, bar none. It came out yesterday that it has been renewed for a 12th, Season. This is tremendous. I know a lot of people don't like Larry David. I know a lot of people were critical of him for how he bashes uh, Christians or Jews or Muslims or Trump supporters or uh, pretty much anybody. <laughs> but uh, I find this to be the funniest show on television. And I think the kind of curmudgeonly character that Larry David plays. <laughs> is uh, absolutely brilliant. And in light of what's happened with Salman Rushdie and this stabbing, what I've been doing when people are over and we're looking for something to just put on in the background, but not have to pay too much attention to it. I've been putting on the season that deals with the fatwa that was issued on Larry David. Now I don't want to give away too much of the season if you haven't seen it because it's very funny, but um, Larry David Is producing a play, a musical called Fatwa, where the whole play, the whole musical is about the Ayatollah of Iran, the supreme leader of Iran, played by F. Murray Abraham, issuing this fatwa against Salman Rushdie, who's played in the musical by uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. And what they do in one of the episodes from this season that deals with Fatwa, they have a scene from Fatwa the musical.
5: Here I
18: am hiding out now in the hole, barely eating, barely sleeping... Taking its toll, fk like I got bigger fish to fry now. I know I'll die now. I need a plan. I do not like
5: this man. Why the scripture? How he mocks me. All this blasphemy and vanity, carnality, exhaust me. It'll cost me my respect in Iran. And so it's time for him to die. I do not like this man. Come on, don't, don't be silly.
13: It was just a book. No book. We now can't let him off the hook. What a
3: coward. God knows that. I, I do, do not,
9: not like this man. What am I gonna do? sentence is the worst friggin' book review It's books like a sickness, they won't picture. Talk trash, about the scripture, not a pretty town. All I wanted was to win the Book
6: of Prize guys, not,
11: have
9: them slip my throat down Shout out my eyes, my mind. I can't allow this desecration This irritation, indignation not while I leave this nation Woo!
11: It's so, it's so Don't try to call a bluff
5: Debrous, as if Writing's not hard enough
11: Even tyrant traitor,
4: violence God knows that I do not
3: Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. That was one of those instances where even though it was a musical number just created for this sitcom, that was the kind of musical that I want to see. I said, I want to see that. It was great. So Larry David, who if you haven't seen the show and you're a Seinfeld fan, you will love this. It's so much funnier than Seinfeld. I got to tell you, I never thought I'd say that about a TV show. But the fact, and I don't use profanity, but the fact that they can use profanity on this show helps enormously. Uh, It really does because the way that they use profanity on this show, it's like watching Monet. It's like watching Picasso. It's artistry, the way they use profanity. It's brilliant. So Larry David plays himself on the show. And I never met Larry David, but the people that I know, uh, Joe Piscopo, for instance, and a couple of other people, uh, Kenny Kramer, the people that I know that know Larry David say This is almost exactly how he is in real life. Almost exactly. This is the statement that Larry David put out yesterday when the news came that uh, HBO was renewing this for a 12th season. Again, I want you to keep in mind this is a statement from Larry David. Playing the role of Larry David has been the greatest honor of my life. In researching this multifaceted, multi-talented man... I discovered that there's more to him than I could ever have imagined. He speaks six languages, brines his own pickles, and spearheads a national movement to install a bidet in every home. I've also been told from numerous sources that he's the most generous of lovers. I'm so excited to once again transform into this force of nature. I only pray that I can do him justice. So I I thought that was a very apropos Uh, bit of humor from Larry David and uh, certainly I'm very much looking forward to uh, the 12th season. I don't know what the timetable is. They haven't set a premiere date for it but uh, I think it's going to be this is a show that I have not seen the quality decline at all and I really enjoy a lot of the guest stars that have been a part of the ensemble like Ted Danson and Vince Vaughn. Keep asking questions.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a
2: strange program, y'all.
1: Now, here's Frank Morano.
3: Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Very excited because we are mere moments away from one of the most famous DJs in radio history, a gentleman I am proud to call a colleague and have gotten to know a little bit over the last couple of years. Not well, I don't want to make it out like we go and hang out together, but I feel like I know him because I listen to him just about every weekend, and that, of course, is the one and only Cousin
2: Bruce.
3: Uh, That's right. Cousin Brucie, who is a a legend in this business and somebody that uh, just by listening to, I've learned a lot from. I'm looking forward to uh, chatting with him. But first, here's a question for you. Do you care if we go back to the moon? It's no secret that we have not been to the moon as a country, meaning in an American excursion. For 50 years, half a century, whole two and a half generations of people have been born and not seen the United States engineer a mission to the moon. Well, now NASA's trying to change that. And a lot of folks are calling this NASA's last stand. The Artemis program to return people to the surface of the moon for the first time since the 70s is a test of whether... This particular space agency's old way of exploration will stand up in the modern space age. So Monday, there's a scheduled launch of the new moon rocket, the space launch system. If this succeeds, it could prove that NASA is still on the cutting edge of the technology that's needed for human space exploration. Remember, I covered this with Dr. Sky last week when he was on the show Because companies like SpaceX are nipping at NASA's heels. But the rocket is billions of dollars over budget, years behind schedule, and even a successful first launch won't change that. John Logsdon, the founder of the Space Policy Institute at George Washington University, told Axios... NASA has never been challenged as the best way for the United States to do hard things in space until now. The SLS is expected to lift lift off next Monday morning. Sending an uncrewed Orion capsule on a journey around the moon and back to Earth. The launch will test the integrated systems before NASA puts people on board and eventually uses the rocket and capsule to deliver people to the moon in 2025. My question for you is, do you think people still care about going to the moon? And why or why not? 800-848-9222. It's 800-848-9222. I still care. I still want to go to the moon. I still want to see people get excited about space exploration. I still want to see people get uh, uh, worried and concerned about the future ...of what's out there and have that same sense of wonder that people did when they were looking at the moon for the uh, the moon landing for the first time back in 1969. If this launch fails, experts say it will imperil imperil NASA's entire Artemis program because a failing over-budget program is far harder to garner political support for. So the stakes are pretty high here for this launch on Monday, and yet... You're not hearing much about it. So the SLS was first ordered by Congress in 2010 and built in much the same way as the Apollo program's Saturn V, using contracts with legacy aerospace companies that trade cost savings for reliability. But as this launch is happening, SpaceX is working to get its Starship vehicle ready to fly to orbit at some point this year, challenging more traditional aerospace companies. So uh, it's very interesting to see what's happening here. And uh, I'm wondering, hey, maybe it's just a private sector thing now. Maybe this is the role of the private sector, and maybe that's what the American public wants. How do you see it coming down? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Speaking of space, I just had to play this for you. Um, do you ever wonder what a black hole Sounds like. Um, Well, NASA has tweeted what they're calling a remixed sonification of the black hole at the center of a galaxy cluster known as Perseus, which lies about 240 million light years away from Earth. The sound waves identified there nearly two decades ago were extracted and made audible for the first time this year. So NASA released this 34-second clip, which I'm about to play for you. This is not a joke. This is genuine. This 34-second clip set social media ablaze with many people pretty surprised at what it sounds like. The idea that there's no sound in space is a popular misconception. While most of space is a vacuum, with no medium for sound waves to travel through, a galaxy cluster, there is copious amounts of gas that envelop the hundreds or even thousands of galaxies within it, providing a medium for the sound waves to travel. This is the audio, which, again, NASA describes as a black hole remix That was first released in early May to coincide with NASA's Black Hole Week, but a tweet Sunday by the NASA Exoplanets team really took off with this clip being viewed more than 13 million times. Sound waves, what I just played for you, they were discovered in 2003 for the first time when after 53 hours of observation, researchers with a NASA observatory discovered that pressure waves sent out by the black hole caused ripples in the cluster's hot gas that could be translated into a note. But humans couldn't hear that note because its frequency was too low the equivalent to a B-flat, some 57 octaves below the middle C note of a piano. So astronomers remixed the sound and increased its frequency by 57 and 58 octaves. Another way to put this is that they're being heard 144 quadrillion and 288 quadrillion times higher than their original frequency. So that's what you just heard, courtesy of the NASA sonification project i think that's pretty cool but people on uh, social media were having some fun with it they thought they were mocking it they thought it sounded pretty eerie what do you think of the black hole sound matt blaze you're a you're a radio professional yeah
13: it sounds like a haunted house or something Is what it sounds like Like, it sounds like
3: halloween it does indeed 800-848-9222 hey look at this this is a nice treat We are the beneficiary of uh, this gentleman hosting some other radio show today. I see on the line we have the minority leader of the New York City Council, Joe Borelli, who beat me in two ping-pong matches this past weekend. Minority leader, uh, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for calling in.
9: Good morrow, Frank. Good morrow. I I couldn't leave the topic of the moon on the table without chiming in. Uh, And I really am excited to be on here talking about it.
3: Yeah, so uh, what's your take? Do you want to go back to the moon?
9: Look, I love the moon. Uh, You know, the moon uh, is is something I see most nights. When I can't see the moon at night, I get upset because it means the weather uh, the next day is often going to be poor. Um, You know, that said, I I give a fart uh, about seeing some grainy video of an astronaut on the moon about as much as I do hearing the the music of a black hole on Melmax. (laughs) If the entire budget of NASA, our space agency, is hanging in the balance of whether Americans are entertained by our space race, uh, I don't think it's an agency that may deserve funding after all. Uh, And I think you're right, Frank. The the private sector is uh, uh, leading the charge to explore the heavens. Uh, And it might be best if people like Elon Musk and his uh, competitors are out there uh, doing this work.
3: Uh, Since you do come from the political realm as well, uh, Joe, I have to ask you about your take on uh, yesterday's primaries. Uh, Florida had primaries yesterday, Oklahoma had primaries yesterday, and certainly we here in New York had primaries yesterday. Uh, Our mutual friend and our congresswoman, Nicole Malliotakis, won overwhelmingly the Republican primary. That's setting up a a rematch against the fellow that she beat two years ago, Max Rose. How would you feel about the primaries in, in New York State or around the country? Anything that you found particularly shocking, anything you found particularly disappointing, anything you found particularly exciting?
9: Yeah, I, I think Nicole certainly had a good win. Uh, I, I was with her last night uh, counting the ballots, and it was nice to uh, it was nice to be there to support her in what was a resounding win for her. Uh, in fact, I really haven't gone to bed. I, I pulled a Murano where I'm still wearing the same clothes uh, I was in last night, and I just chugged through the night uh, to go on Fox in, a, in, a, in an hour or so. Um, but I think one of the things that really stood out is that all of Donald Trump's uh, Republican endorsees uh, actually won. Uh, there were, you know, a, a number of them in Florida, a number of them uh, in New York, and all of them actually won. I think that still solidifies this place uh, as leading the Republican Party. Certainly leading the, uh, the, the 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 political end of the Republican Party, uh, meaning the, the 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 entity within the party that actually draws the most votes uh, out. So I think that really solidified that uh, himself. Uh, I was uh, concerned about the Molinero race. I think it's New York 17. Uh,
3: uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh, because of the redistricting, I don't know if it's uh, 17 or 19 on the, in the special.
9: But, but but either way, I mean, for those that aren't familiar, this is a mid-Hudson Valley uh, seat now, uh, which has some uh, upstate cities uh, like Poughkeepsie, uh, like uh, um, Kingston, Um, But it's a lot of suburbs and a lot of rural areas. It's exactly where the Republican Party has to compete. Uh, And yet what we saw there was, frankly, the issue of abortion driving uh, droves uh, of people out to come out and vote against Mark Molinaro. And I think that is concerning when uh, abortion is driving out more votes uh, in, in a swing district or a potential swing district then inflation and prime and some of the things we prefer to talk about, so that is something that the Republican Party has to be concerned about uh, and has to take measures to ensure we don't uh, lose votes or lose well, voters. Well, so ha-
3: how do you do that, Joe? And I know be- before you were an elected official, you were a-, a campaign manager and a skilled campaign strategist. If you were advising Republicans running in purple districts like this district that Marcus Molinaro just lost in the special election in New York. What would you tell them about how they avoid letting the abortion issue define their campaigns?
9: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's got to be one uh, in the fundraising portion of your campaign where you have to be uh, on air uh, often, uh, as often as possible. Obviously, that, that should be always the goal. Um, but you have to actually saturate media markets with uh, the idea that the state in this case is less safe than it was before. Democrats had one party rule. Uh, and that inflation is really the root of your problem. It's not an issue of convincing people to vote for the Republican. It's an issue of motivating voters. So it's not like you're going to convince someone, potentially at the last moment, to switch their party allegiance. Uh, we, we just have to be scared that uh, a number of people who are pro-choice uh, are going to feel mm. that every single House race uh, is, is, is one where the, the right to choose is on the line.
3: Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting. Uh, Joe, i, I got to run. I have uh, Cousin Brucey waiting in the rings. Uh, have fun. Cousin on
2: Brucey!
3: Have, have fun. Have fun on the radio program you're hosting today. I'll see you for our next ping-pong rendezvous. Hey. 800-489-222. The one and only, as you heard from the minority leader, the one and only Cousin Brucey. straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Marano with
2: cousin Bruce
3: Well, I don't know about you, but that's how every Saturday night of mine has started for literally decades. When I meet someone and I tell them that I work at uh, WABC, they have no idea what I talk about, what my radio program's about, and no idea who I am inevitably one of the first questions i get is do you know cousin brucey and for the last two years it has been my great pleasure to say yes you know i've worked in radio for a long time at varying levels as a producer as a talk show host on once a week on early mornings on every day and you really at least in my case i never really felt like i had made it to big time radio until I got to welcome cousin Brucey as a colleague and meet him and talk to him and uh, and kind of chew the fat about the radio business and to call him a colleague is one of the uh, greatest honors of my life, not just my professional life but my life, and it gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome legendary radio DJ, probably the most famous radio DJ in history, and the host of Cousin Brucey's Saturday Night Party every Saturday night at 6 p.m. on 77 Music Radio, WABC, the one and only Cousin Brucey, Bruce Morrow. Hello, Bruce.
11: Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. (laughs) Oh, what the heck? Frank, how did you do this to me? What time is it? (laughs) Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. It's... Don't tell me. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. My eggs are ready. <laughs> Holy cow. Frank, you amaze me. L- let me tell you something, Frank, before we continue. I'll be quiet, which is almost an impossibility for me, as you know. Um, you uh, had a lot to do with me relaxing when I first started back, coming home to WABC. Because, you know, you know, I did Sirius for what, 13 sure. years. And the WABC, all those great years, and NBC – so it's been a wonderful flight. So when you come home to the place you want to be again, yeah, believe it or not, I was a little nervous. I was nervous, right? And you're probably saying, Brucey, nervous? Yeah. But then you walked in. You walked in. Now, we really had not, and I, I knew about your reputation, but we had not met physically. And you welcomed me to WABC. You are warm, you are charming, and you are a delight to be a colleague of you made me feel very good and welcome.
3: Uh, well, please, I, I feel like I can retire after after that. I mean, uh, you've uh, made my head <laughs> about as big as can be. Uh, there's so many questions that I want to ask you about music, about the nature of the radio business uh, back when you first started, about the things that you've uh, presided over. But let me begin with uh, a little bit uh, your take on what's happening these days in radio. You know, one of the things that I find uh, that's a, a challenge for me occasionally is that uh, because I don't do the same kind of show that the rest of the station does, obviously the rest of the station does great, and it's mostly wall-to-wall politics, I do, you know, I prefer to talk about a broader array of issues. I'm curious, as... Much success as you've had at Sirius, at CBS-FM, at uh, WNBC, at all sorts of other great formats. Was that a challenge for you at all, getting the uh, WABC audience, which is used to hearing hardcore news talk, to accept four hours, initially it was three hours, of music programming and talk about music on the weekend?
11: Was that a challenge for you at all? Absolutely. In fact, this was the thing... Uh Talking to Chad and uh, cousin John, which I'll tell you a cute story about John and Margot, how I met them. Uh, this was an original uh, talk about that. I said, "How am I going to possibly garner an audience that has uh, people on the air that are just, uh, whoo, as I said, kind of rough?" So they said to me, "Look, you come on, your cousin Brucey. You do not have anything to do with politics. You are your own station." We renamed it, uh, obviously, on Saturdays as, you know, Music Radio. I let the audience know every time I'm on the air, Frank, Cousin Frank, I I say to him, look, no politics. I'm not interested in what your leanings are, left, right, middle, upside down, whatever (laughs) the heck you are. Leave it out. Let it go to the other guys. This is a four-hour time of just absolute relaxation. It's our green park. And the music, I don't care what political persuasion you are, right? I don't care where you come from. There's one thing that's a commonality. There's one thing that is an absolute meeting of the minds. It's music. And when you get the music of the 50s, 60s, and 70s together, you have it made. So it, it was a challenge. It was a challenge. We've been on the air now. It's about two years, and it's worked I guess you've seen the numbers. Oh, yeah. uh, yeah. They're pretty good. And and, and I'm very thrilled because the audience, most of the time, 99.9% of the time, will say, okay, let's leave the stuff outside in the street. This is our time to relax. Let's let it go. And I'll tell you something, right? You listen. You know they let it go. They're there for a good time. And finally, everybody gets together. Everybody. Which shows you people can have a common meeting ground.
3: It's music. Well, uh, that's terrific. And the sense that I get... And one of the reasons I think our show in the overnights has been pretty successful is because I feel like people of all political persuasions, while they may have very strong beliefs about certain things, I feel like everybody needs a little bit of a break uh, that they don't want necessarily 24 hours of uh, all, uh, you know, the other the other side is uh, is uh, is junk and our side is right about everything. So I feel like they do need uh, a a little bit of a break. And I think that's one of the reasons you've done so well. Uh, I really am. in awe and i do listen just about every week and i am in awe of your ability to blend talk and music to play great songs to tell great stories about the songs to have great interactions with the callers to do great interviews with people which are really informative and to tell terrific personal stories Um, has that always been your marquee going back to your time starting at wabc or even before that at w-i-n-s blending talk and music together
11: not at all Frank when we first started you know, with uh, with this format, when formats back there at WINS and go back to ZBM, which I started in Bermuda, which is kind of a fun story. Uh, we were playing music, time and weather, chimes, you know, jingles. Uh, we, we celebrated the radio station. We didn't celebrate the audience. And that's the difference today. You and I are celebrating this audience. The audience is complex, very complex and very sophisticated. They demand more than somebody getting on and saying, Hi, this is your cousin, Brucey, from an i high Tower of Black Shellac, giving you the latest by Chuck Berry. No, they don't want that anymore. Right? They really want to be involved. They want me involved in their lives. So as we developed over the past, I'd say maybe 10 years, Cousin Brucey has become a variety show. I'm a variety show. That's what I look at. And you described it perfectly. Music is a prime thing. Uh, Information is very important. Interaction with the audience and interaction with my guests. Now, most of my guests are all very dear friends. You know, they grew up with me. I helped them with their careers. They helped me with my careers. So we have a very personal feeling towards each other. So my interviews are kind of personal. I'm on the couch. I I don't call them, Frank, I guess, you know, I don't call them interviews. I call them visits, (laughs) and that's what they are. In my visits, so to answer your question in a long long form, no, things have really developed this way, and I am thrilled that I am now a variety guy i 'm not just a jock telling time and weather
3: You know, one of the things that i 've noticed on the, in, the, in, the, in, the mu- in music radio on both satellite radio and terrestrial radio obviously that 's primarily fm uh, terrestrial radio is that the role of the DJ has almost been eradicated. So when I put you on, when, say, my wife and I are driving around on a Saturday night or we'll have people over on a Saturday night, and they hear... Uh, conversation uh, to complement the music, it has become such a rare thing because so many radio stations don't do that anymore. And I, I, really think, uh, I really think a whole new generation is developing a new respect for the role of a DJ. I mean, what do you think?
11: Absolutely. There was a, a whole new idea. You know, I was honored uh, a couple of years ago by Talkers Magazine, so when I got the, uh, the, the invitation to get this award, Talker uh, Magazine Award, uh, I was so thrilled because I really was just doing this thing. It was almost like a, a natural transition from just music and uh, news and uh, station IDs and promos to, as I said, I love the word variety. I, I really enjoy it. So it was almost a natural transition. But, Frank, it happened very slowly. In fact, so slowly, I didn't even realize that it was happening. It just was a wonderful, wonderful transition, and uh, it took many, many years. So I I didn't know what was happening until I got to WABC, and then one day I realized, wait a minute, this is not the Cousin Brucey show originally heard on WABC. It's now matching this sophisticated audience that is demanding, demanding much more in their programming, and we're giving it to them. Uh, One of
3: the things that I'm constantly amazed at in your abilities as a conversationalist is you have a lot of great interviews with all sorts of folks. Uh, people like uh, Connie Francis, people like uh, Gary Lewis, people like uh, Tony Orlando, uh, people uh, like uh, Frankie Valli, people of all, uh, of all ilks, all styles of music, all, all aspects of life. And I always end up learning something new in your conversations with them. Just the other day, a couple of weeks ago with you and uh, little Anthony, for instance. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, what is, in your view is the key to being a good interviewer or, as you would say, it, a good conversationalist? And always getting something new out of somebody that the audience might have heard give 9,000 interviews. And yet you always manage to get something new out of them. What's the
11: secret? Well, I think you know the secret. I'm sure you – no, you do. I listen to you. You practice it. It's called learning how to listen. Listen, L-I-S-S-E-N, listen. <laughs> listen, I think I left a, uh, a T out. Uh, <laughs> it's learning to listen to your visitor, to your guest, and not just uh, ratchet jawing or, and reading uh, uh, prearranged questions. I mean, how many times have you and I been on shows – whether it be, or be a television or radio shows, as a guest. And the person asks you a question, the host asks you a question, and you start answering it, and then you look at the person, and he's not even looking at you. Mm. There's no eye contact. They're looking down at the next damn question, mm. right? So that doesn't work. As I said, the audience is so smart. They they are so media savvy today. They are me- And they demand, right? They demand good entertainment and information. So I think the answer to that is learning how to listen. Listen hard and properly.
3: I went to New York University, as you did. Uh, I was on uh, WNYU, the radio station there. I did the news. I produced a a talk show there, and I hosted a talk show there, and on the wall of the newsroom at the radio station and on the wall of the studio was your picture. And I had been a listener of yours at, for literally 15 years at that point, and I had no idea of the role that you played in the founding and the
11: formation of WNYU, the college radio station there. How did that come to be? <laughs> no, pardon me. I, I, I'm not laughing at the question. I'm laughing at the experience. You want to hear this? This is weird. You want to hear this? I do. All right. This is really quite something. I think you'll laugh too, Uh course. Well, but it, it ended very happily. I uh, went to Brooklyn College for about six months, and uh, they invited me to leave. I couldn't find the classes, Frank. I couldn't find everything. <laughs> every I every time I went Believe to the class, me, it I was. Relate. I just said they changed it somewhere, so I had to get out of there. I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I grew up. I wanted to be a physician. I wanted to be a doctor, but. I fell in love with radio in high school thanks to my high school uh, English teacher. She thought I had some sort of talent, so I became part of the uh, uh, New York uh, Board of Education radio group, and it's uh, housed at WNYE FM in uh, Brooklyn Tech High School in New York, and that's why I fell in love with radio. Um, (laughs) I uh, eventually got to NYU. I found myself, and at NYU... I was not very happy going to classes and learning about, you know, all the, the all kinds of uh, history and uh, geography and you know the typical uh, the typical uh, semester worth of uh, books and textbooks. I wanted something different out of my college college career. But to me, a, a college education is a, a physical thing, not just reading books or getting somebody's the theories that are old fashioned. So I decided that what they needed was a radio station. And I loved, always loved radio. So one day I got myself up by the bootstraps and uh, I met uh, this professor, Professor Falk and uh, uh, Professor Emerson. And they told me to go after it because there was no radio station in this great New York university. So I (laughs) trudged across Washington Square Park. It was snowing. I remember and this is a very important part of the story. It was snowing and slushy. And I got myself up an appointment with the dean of the particular school. I think it was the School of Education I graduated from, believe it or not. And uh, I went into the dean, and he said, yes, Mr. Morrow, can I help you? I said, yes, Dean, we need a radio station. He looked up from his papers at me as if uh, a Martian entered the room. He said, what? I said, well, this is a university, you and I, and, and we need to share ideas. And one of the ideas can come from a broadcast station that is run by students for New York University. So I walked into his room, by the way. This is what I was laughing at. And I walked through uh, the park, and my boots were just absolutely muddied, muddied and full of snow. I mean, I walked into this dean's office, his beautiful new, uh, he had a, uh, a carpet on the floor, and I destroyed it. All right, I didn't know that. So he was not happy with me. He says, What do you need? I said, I don't know. I want I want uh I need some cable. I need your permission to do this. I want to build a radio station. He gave me twenty eight dollars. You hear what I just said? Twenty
3: eight dollars?
11: Twenty eight now I don't know. <laughs> But he wanted me out of there. He said, Now do what you have to do. Here's twenty eight dollars, here's your budget. You know, it wasn't that simple. And he threw me out. He asked me to leave nicely, was not happy with me. Right? Well, I took that $28 back to the advisors, the professors, and uh, they said, what are you going to do with it? So the first thing I did, I bought some cable. I did some some AC wire. I bought a Dynavox phonograph, (laughs) a phonograph. We had a couple microphones from English classes there, and we had a room, and they got me a studio. We built a studio. Now, this is what we did. The Dynavox... Played records. I made a deal with London. You remember London FFRR, Full Frequency range Recordings? They had great stuff from Montevani, I mean, nothing. No Chuck Berry's, no Everly Brothers, but they had a great catalog. And they gave it to me because I went up there and I said, hey, brand new station, New York University. As soon as you say New York University, eyebrows go up. Sure. So they gave me their catalog. Hundreds of albums started coming into my little studio the the Dynavox record player was held against a microphone, and if I somebody would say, "All right, here's Monteverdi from the London FFR, whatever it was," and uh, everybody had to be quiet in the studio because the microphone was actually the thing that was picking up the live sound of the phonograph, <laughs> and we we did that. Now where were we to go? Well, we couldn't we didn't couldn't afford a transmitter. We couldn't broadcast. That takes you know. Legalities and things like that. So I took the wire, took the wire, made a deal. I was always a good deal maker. I'm a kid from Brooklyn, you know. So <laughs> we not, you know, Frank. We not, we we know how to make deals, you know. So I went down to the uh, the supervisor of the lounge, which was on I was on the eighth floor with the studio, and uh, I was on the fourth floor. It was one of the you know big lounge green room, and I dropped the wire out of the window of the eighth floor down to the fourth floor, snaked it into the fourth floor, and went behind a radio and soldered the radio to the wires. <laughs> that was the birth of WNYU, WNYE. And uh, then I got another lounge and another lounge, and then I started selling commercials. And then I started getting a new staff and uh, putting a whole club together, and it became a real radio station. Great effort by the students. It was wonderful. That's how I spent my college career. And you know something? It was the smartest thing I've ever done. Well,
3: that's terrific. Uh, That is terrific. Now, you alluded to your time in uh, Bermuda. Now, in the Bermuda days, and uh, there was uh, you had some interesting experiences there. Folks may know that uh, that you you were called not cousin Brucey but the Hammer. Uh, There's been such uh, uh, so many myths that have emerged about the genesis of the term. Cousin Brucey, since we have you here once and for all, can you settle it for us? Where did Cousin Brucey, as a name, as a moniker, as a radio personality, where did that
11: come from? Well, Cousin Frank, you know we all need shtick. We all need something to lean on, something different. So my name is Bruce Morrow, and I, uh, I did my shows, Bruce Morrow, on all the stations. And one night, uh, I'm going through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. I'm going home to Brooklyn. I lived on Ocean Parkway. And in the middle of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, literally I heard a voice. And mentally, psychologically, a, a blue light went off, and it said, Cousin Brucie. Cousin, I, I don't know where it came from to this day. I don't know. And uh, I know the mark. If I ever go to the Battery Tunnel, I know where it happened exactly because there's still a rose growing from that area in the in the, in the <laughs> tile. Uh, Cousin Brucie. I went the next day in, Frank to the program director, and I said, sir, uh, I would like to be called Cousin Bruce from now on, Cousin Brucey, because a little old lady came into the studio. i got to preface this remark. Uh, a little old lady came into the studio. <clears throat> excuse me. And, uh, she said uh, a guard brought her in, and this is a very important part of the story, and uh, she said to me, do you believe we're all related? This is how, exactly how it happened, Exact." And I said, yes, ma'am. I love people. I've always loved people. And I said, excuse me for a moment. And I queued up my record. And we played 45s in those days, queued it up, and started the record. And I said, what can I do for you, ma'am? He said, well, we're all related. Cousin, lend me 50 cents to get home. I'm broke. Frank, <laughs> right? that's exa- That's Honest to God, that's what happened. I gave this lady, this little old twinkle-eyed lady with beautiful blue hair and glasses, who looked me in the eye. You know, when someone looks you in the eye, Frank, you know, i learned that a long time ago. You are captured. It's magnet. You you want something from somebody, look them right in the eye. Don't look down at the jaw. And uh, she thanked me and said, cousin, thank you. That night, going to Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, cousin came about I love it. I love it. And, I was, love yeah. it. and said, so the next morning, I go into uh, <laughs> Mr. Leeds, and I said, sir, I want to be called Cousin Bruce. Cousin Bruce is from that one. So he said to me, quote, Are you out of your mind? He added a couple words in the middle, which I'm not going to repeat now because I don't do that. All right, are you you out of your mind? Right? This is this is not Morgantown. This is not Cheesequake. Right? (laughs) This is the Big Apple, Sonny. I was a kid. What do I know? And I was scared stiff. I said, "But, sir, everybody loves their cousins. You go to your aunt and uncle's house. I don't know where I got this energy from, and uh, you love going there because they have the best toys." And they feed you and they give you the best uh, the best uh, treats all the time. So he looked at me and he said, you know what? Maybe you have something there. Tell you what, kid, try it, but don't overdo it. Because if you overdo it, I'm going to fire you the next morning. Well, nobody tells a kid from Brooklyn not to overdo it. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's silly. I think, Frank... I must have used the word cousin after every third word. <laughs> 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 and that still hasn't
3: changed. No. If people, no,
11: just- I love it. But you know, I mean it. it. It really is warm, and it's nice, it's fuzzy, and people love it. People love it. It's not just some guy talking through a bunch of wires and uh, digital things. It's a relative. It's somebody want, you want in their house, and you feel familiar with them. So I did the cousin the next morning, Frank. I got a call at 6.30 a.m. You're used to time like that. I never saw 6.30 a.m., right? I still don't want to see it. And he said, get your blank in here. Get, get in here quick. You're in trouble. I called my father, Frank. I was so scared because I didn't know what it was like, somebody getting mad at me, like, uh, you know, a general manager or a program director. I thought he was going to smack me or something, beat me up. So I called my father, who was very street smart. He goes in with me, and uh, he says to I. I, be, I was very quiet, I was so scared, because I didn't know what it was like to be fired or, or dismissed. And my father said, well, what's the problem, sir? He said, your son disobeyed. I want to show you something, Mr. Morrow. And he goes, he opens his desk drawer. This is a great story. Opens his desk drawer, and he puts his hands in the desk drawer and comes up with hundreds of these yellow envelopes, now, you're too young, but we used to have something pre, pre-email pre called Western Union <laughs> telegrams. You're too young, right? And he takes these hundreds of telegrams and throws them on his desk, and they spill over the desk. And he was really kind of angry, I guess. And he said, Just look what he did. He was told not to. So my father very wisely said, well, you know, it seems to me that that's a great response, and that's positive. Why don't you put him under a contract? Wow. So, yeah, uh, my father. And my father wasn't a radio guy. He was just my dear friend, and he was he was my protector and great. Well, Leeds looks up on my father, looks over to me, almost glaring, and says, you know what? That's exactly what we decided to do. We're putting him under a seven-year contract. Now, your cousin, Brucey. That's it. Cousin Brucey was born, Frank. I love that it. Was and, it.
3: And clearly uh, it has, uh, it has uh, stuck. It has worked. And uh, I've seen the ratings that you're doing now and the ratings you were doing 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago. And the one thing that's uh, pretty consistent is that the audience responds in uh, in droves, whether it's Saturday or any other day. Uh, I have to ask you, and if people just tuning in, we're talking with Cousin Brucey. You can hear him every Saturday night on uh, WABC from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern or listen anywhere in the world at WABC Radio io.com. Uh, I, you've been in a number of films, number of television programs over the years because you've been so associated over the last 60 years with what classic radio is, with what classic music is, and what classic New York is. So a lot of times if they try and recapture a moment of, in time, like uh, certainly Dirty Dancing did with the Catskills, you'll be featured as uh, as you know a personality in that. One uh, television program that you did, which might be a little against... Type for what people perceive as the Cousin Brucey brand, uh, brand was when you were on Babylon 5. Now, I'm a sci fi <laughs> guy. I love space, I love science fiction, love that show, Babylon 5. How in the world did a New York DJ, who at that time was largely specializing in oldies, end up on a show about uh, what was going on in the
11: 23rd century? How did you end up on Babylon 5? Well, you know, Frank, I think you almost answered the question yourself. Being a New York personality and being reasonably successful, the word spreads. you uh, It's not just your audience, but within the business itself, you become pretty popular and famous, and people want to use you for different things because they know that, uh, obviously, there's some kind of a hidden message there. So one day I get a call from uh, the producers of Babylon 5. Now, I've watched Babylon 5, always, always enjoy it because I'm a sci-fi guy myself. And they said, we'd like you to play... Commander Nolan, and uh, could you come in? Uh, could you make it to Los Angeles, wherever it was, at a certain time? I said, my friend, let me tell you something. Clear the runways. I have my own <laughs> rocket ship. I'll be there in 22 minutes. <laughs> I was so excited. Yeah, I look, I've done a lot of television. Uh, the Dirty Dancing thing is a, an annuity for my great, 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 great grandchildren. Wonderful time. But Babylon 5 was the most unusual thing. You know, it was kind of interesting. I love to act. I went to school. I went to draw my parents. My parents were great. Right? They, they took under to the chin when I didn't want to become a great doctor, and uh, uh, which I still have that in me. I'd love to do that. So maybe the next time around. And uh, I, I just love the idea of acting. So they dressed me up, made me up. I had, uh, you know, the... The thing on my wrist, the, trans- the sure, transponder. Right. And uh, I had my uniform on. I became a commander. And the, the storyline was that this ship, Babylon see, Babylon, Babylon 4. Think, yeah, Babylon 4 was the one before that was going to crash. And there were hundreds of people on this thing. People are running around. In the, and uh, he said, abandoned ship, abandoned ship. And I'm there doing this thing. And I, you want to listen to this. I got so scared that I became a great actor. I was—I got into it. I thought we were going to crash. I forgot we were doing a show. I really—I don't know if that's method acting or just stupidity on my part. But I got so nervous, right? So scared, and it came out great. In fact, I still get residual from it, and every once in a while, somebody sends me a copy of that. And I love it. Oh love no, it, it. that was a, a fun thing.
3: It still holds up. It's still great. And and I hear they're doing a reboot of Babylon Five. So who knows? Maybe they'll have to bring you back as that first <laughs> officer in uh, Babylon Four. Uh, before we run out of time, I, I think I, I heard from our program director Matt Meany that you have an upcoming concert in New Jersey that you're hosting. Uh, can you tell us any details about that, or is that uh, still no. on the Q T?
11: Oh no, no, no. It's, that's out. It's uh, every year I do a couple. Uh, a couple of shows at PNC Bank Art Center out in Homedale, New Jersey. Now, this place is an amazing theater. It's sort of semi-outside, 15,000, 20,000 capacity there. We get huge crowds. Uh, I did it with WABC. I did it it with Sears. I I did a lot of shows there. And every year I do at least two shows around this time. And the next show is coming up. I've... uh, I do Palisades Park We visited. I do You know, Palisades Park mm. is so much part of everybody's DNA. So every year, because we lost Palisades Park, I do a Palisades Park reunion. And I, I, I sort of book the acts that appeared with me at Palisades Park, which, by the way, is plentiful. Everybody from, from the Supremes to uh, Little Richard were there. They were, everybody was there. And uh, so I book these acts, and we do a reunion. Now this next one is going to be on September the ninth at PNC Center, Now, here's the kicker, Frank. Ready for this? The tickets are free. Wow! Now that's what I love. They're free. Even
3: I can afford that.
11: <laughs> They're free because uh, it's sponsored by the, you uh, know, the Garden State Arts Foundation, and they, that's what they do. They, they take part in the arts and they do free shows. And I put together these shows. This uh, year we have Frankie Avalon, which I'm really, I'm really looking forward to seeing him again. Love him. We have uh, Jay Siegel's uh, the Tokens. The Lion Sleeps Tonight. We have uh, a great group, Brian, uh, uh, Brian McIntosh. I think it's Brian McIntosh. Let me let's see if I have that thing here. Uh, oh, oh, that's okay. i have Brian. Uh, and Brian is going to, uh, a great group that's going to be uh, doing tribute. Tribute to the Drifters. Here it is. Uh, back, yeah, Brian McIntosh, Drifters. It's a, a tribute group. Drifters, they do all the Drifter songs, and they're fabulous. And then the other group, uh, um, sort of uh, rounding it out, is Norman Fox and the Rob Roy's, tell me why. So these are all legit acts that played at Palisades Park with me in those great days, in the days when things were a little more innocent and quiet, and that'll be on the 9th. Tickets are free, and uh, just show up. That's that's great. So
3: people can just show up. They don't have to reserve tickets in advance or anything
11: like that. No, they can get tickets. We uh, They send in uh, a self-addressed stamp envelope. I don't have the door.
3: Uh, uh, well, I'm that's be... great. Good. Yeah, uh, no, but that...
11: Otherwise, they can just show up.
3: Uh, uh, that's terrific. Last question I'll ask you, and I have literally pages worth of notes of stuff that I'd love to uh, get into with you and maybe we could do this again in a week or two because uh, maybe we'll I've do had, part two How about I've had part two? Time. that would be great that would be great but let me ask you this you have presided and, and as a radio professional this is one of the many other things that I admire about you you've been able to do so well in so many different formats you did you did AM radio and then you made that transition from AM to FM seamlessly you did you went you did FM radio really well better than anybody and then you made the transition from FM radio to satellite radio when it was still sort of in its infant form, and you made that transition seamlessly. Then you made the transition to uh, from satellite radio back to AM radio doing a music show at a, at a time when most of AM radio was dominated by talk. Have you always had the same approach to radio, or have you changed your style depending on what format, what platform you were on at any given point in your career?
11: All right, so it's a couple answers to that. Coming back and changing formats, you keep your eyes closed, hold your breath, and say, oh, Lord, help me out with this (laughs) one. (laughs) Number one, please, somebody help me. Um, You know, there's a common denominator in almost every format we talk about. The one we're doing here, the one I'm doing on WABC, the one I did on Sirius, all of them. The common denominator is being aware of the audience, knowing your market, caring about that listener. When I go on the radio, Cousin Frank, I never talk at anybody. I talk to them. When people listen to me, they believe I'm talking right to them, and I am. I feel feel that audience. So that's number one. Number two, the music, the music and the content. Who am I talking to? What do I want to accomplish? So I put all these things together, I get a wonderful salad, I serve it up, and I say, Lord, help me. That's it.
3: Well, whatever you're doing, it's working. Uh, Bruce, I know I really pushed my luck getting you to be awake at the, this odd hour. Don't but... tell
11: me, don't tell me what time it is. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm hoping that we can do it again in a week or two. Thank you so much, Cousin Brucey.
11: Thank you, Cousin Frank.
3: Uh, if you want to catch Cousin Brucey, you can uh, do so live Saturday nights on WABC or WABCradio.com, or you can check out the podcast if you're not around Saturday night or you're doing kind of like I do, which is a digital detox during the day, a little bit on Saturday, spend some time with the family and relaxing a little bit. You can catch the podcast the next day, and uh, it holds up just as well the next day. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'll take your calls in just a moment. If you want to comment? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
4: I sit in my room Looking out at the rain My tears are like. Cover my window pane. I'm thinking of our lost romance and how it should have been. Oh, if we only could start over again. I know you never forgive me, dear, for running out on you. I was wrong. Teardrops, Lee With Andrews.
3: This is the other side of midnight. I'll take your calls in a moment at 800-848-9222. Big day yesterday in the Moreno household because after two years of living in our house at, our, at my current address, I was able to successfully change my address at my bank. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, we had a good experience there, you know, because remember, the last time I tried to change the address, they said, well, no, you need a, a two utility bill. So I came armed with all sorts of stuff. I came armed with my driver's license, my car insurance card, my uh, voter registration card, my um, a bill that they had sent me for a red light violation or a speed speeding violation. A bill that a medical bill that they had sent me from a, a COVID test, which I don't understand why I had to pay for, but they keep sending me bills for it. It's got my name, my address, and the guy. I went to a different branch of this bank, but the guy said to me, "We don't need any of this. We just need your, uh, we just need your your driver's license. That's fine. Okay, great. So I think it's going all really well. I'm even able to order a new bunch of checks which I had run out of long ago, and then. They said, well, you're going to have to come back in 30 days before we can get you a new ATM card. What? So now I'm still without an ATM card for the next month. I hope no one I encounter needs any cash. Your influence counts. Make sure
19: you use it.
3: Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, I was just thinking, you know, I'm getting all sorts of correspondence here: email, text message, Facebook, Instagram, all sorts of And if you want to email me, you can frank.morano at uh, That's Frank.morano at All complimentary of the Cousin Brucey interview or commenting on something that Cousin Brucy had to say. And you think about the format that Cousin Brucie does on his show on Saturday night, on Cousin Brucie's Saturday Night Party. And essentially, he'll play some music. He'll talk a little bit. He'll maybe interview somebody. But most of the show is callers calling in and requesting songs and dedicating it to someone. He'll say, um, oh, you want to hear only you? Who who do you want to dedicate it to? and they'll say oh i want to dedicate it to my uh, my girlfriend janet right and it's interesting it's fun and i'm wondering has that ever has that concept ever been tried in the world of talk radio so i why don't we try it right now so what i'm going to do is invite you to call in at 800-848-9222 and request a talk topic. Okay. If you want to hear me talk about welfare reform or uh, Joe Biden droning people to death in Somalia or um, the, uh, the cultural differences between living in New York and LA, if you want to request a talk topic, you can offer your commentary on it as well. Call in now at 800 848 9222. But here's the caveat. We're going to invite you to dedicate that talk topic to someone, just like you would a song. Yeah, you could say, uh, instead of saying, oh, Frank, I I want to hear, um, I want to hear, uh, I don't know, uh, me and Julio down by the schoolyard, I want to dedicate this to my uh, fourth grade teacher who I just learned is having a tough time, she's in hospice care. no. You could call in and say, well, Frank, I want to hear a discussion about the uh, primary yesterday in the 10th Congressional District and what that means for the fall. I want to dedicate that to Peter Gleason, one of the candidates that was in that primary. We're going to go ahead and try it right now. What's your talk topic? Who are you dedicating it to? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Anthony in Boston. Hello, Anthony.
12: Frank, God bless you. I've been on the line the whole time listening. We're talking about the spacings there, right? When you were talking about like should we go to the moon? I think, don't you think, with all the climate change stuff, that we need to go to the moon? It doesn't matter who's there, government or private. Is the moon controlling? Like the moon controls everything. The tides, the 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 like the moons and everything, we need to focus on
8: that,
3: don't you think? I do. Uh, And I think uh, it's important not just because the moon controls the tides and everything, but uh, I forget who I was talking to the other day. There's certainly a possibility that one day we might um, blow ourselves up on this planet or make the Earth so uninhabitable (laughs) that uh, some disaster befalls us all, and we've got to find another place to live. Where are we going to go but the moon at that point? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Talk topic dedication time here on the cousin Frankie show. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 one two three four five six six open lines. This could turn out to be a failed experiment. We'll see. Pamela is in Central New Jersey. Hello, Pamela.
0: Uh, well, this has to do with your other topic. Um, there
6: was an episode of Miami Vice. Uh, those of us who remember that show that. Was so good that I still remember it. Um, it, it dealt with diplomats getting—he was a
0: rapist and he was getting away with it. And that show, you know, it was made fun of a lot, but there was a lot of,
6: you know, uh, pop things that came out of that show. But it was actually a very good show. It dealt with certain topics, and uh, Gina, the main uh, female cop. Uh, I think she actually dated the diplomat, and they were trying to get him, but he kept getting away. And
0: it was actually very good, very good show. Yeah, I remember I mean, Miami they're...
3: Vice. I never saw that. Uh, I never saw that particular episode, but it certainly sounds uh, certainly sounds interesting. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I know the the fellow that was one of the. I think he was the showrunner, or maybe he was just one of the writers on the uh, on Miami Vice. He has got a, um, a new book out that uh, seems pretty interesting. I think it's a, actually a sequel to the movie Heat. Remember Heat with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino? That was the first time they ever shared a screen together. I think that, um, I think that the book is a sequel to that picture. 800 Talk topic dedication time. Joe, what do you want to hear? Who do you want to dedicate it to? Uh, what
15: is the case against Black Lives Matter?
3: Okay, and and who do you want to dedicate it to? Uh,
15: John. John, who?
10: John Henry.
3: John Henry. All right. So you want to know what is the case against Black Lives Matter?
10: Yes. What is the complaint against Black Lives Matter?
3: Um, the complaint from whom?
10: Uh, from the uh, from the right. I mean, yeah, from the right.
3: Yeah, I mean, I and thanks, thank you for the request, Joe. Uh, And I'm starting to see why maybe this format only works for music. Maybe it doesn't work as well for talk. I I think the the problem with Black Lives Matter is you had a lot of people. Giving money with the best of intentions to heal racial injustice, to uh, try and make up for historical examples of oppression, to deal with uh, things that uh, serious issues related to police brutality, police misconduct that might have gone unprosecuted or under prosecuted. And yet... The leaders of Black Lives Matter didn't really use the substantial contributions that they were getting both from individuals and from uh, and from corporate America. They didn't use it to help anyone except themselves. Uh, I think a lot of the people that gave money to Black Lives Matter thought that they were going to be doing good. And instead, it ended up going to some leaders of these groups that ended up doing instead very well. So I think that's part of the complaint. So I also think that um in some quarters the Black Lives Matter rhetoric was so incredibly inflammatory and there was also a a demonization of the police that I think served to divide police and community rather than bring them together. So John Henry, I hope you enjoyed that uh, topic. Matt in Rockland, what talk topics do you want to hear, and who are you dedicating it to?
2: I'm dedicating it to my mother. May uh, she rest in peace. And I wanted to talk about the demise of Catholic grammar schools in the country. Uh, I'm shocked that uh, there, in, 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 in my grade, there used to be three classes of between 30 to 40 kids Now they can barely get 10 kids in a grade, and uh, all these schools have now turned into academies. And I'm wondering where all the Catholics went. Uh, Our our parents scrimped and saved to send us to Catholic school, and I thought a lot of these new immigrants from Latin America would be filling these spots in these schools, but I guess they're not. And uh, I'm curious to know what your take on it is uh, for – all the education that uh, Catholic schools gave us, including arithmetic, could, could their demographers not see the uh, decrease in our numbers? And uh, why do they keep building schools that wouldn't be uh, sustained by uh, either uh, the pro-family pro, uh, 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 nature of Catholicism and having big families and or the uh, immigrants that have come in what, what, what
3: happened to us all right well, thank you, Matt. Uh, a couple of things one I think that 's a fair point and the the decline in Catholic school education has been a fascinating thing to watch, and I think it it parallels pretty closely in terms of percentages the decline in church attendance uh, we 've seen a decline in Catholic church attendance over the years, and I think that you're seeing a parallel with the decline in Catholic school attendance. However, yet last year, for the first time in 20 years, enrollment in—actually, this year, really—for the first time in 20 years, enrollment in Catholic elementary and secondary schools increased Increase. No, last year. So it was 2021 into 2022. So it's the school year that starts in fall of 2021 and goes till June of 2022. It rose by 3.8% in one year. Now, that is a pretty significant increase. That's according to data from the National Catholic Educational Association. The enrollment boost was driven largely by the leadership that Catholic schools showed in returning to in person learning a year before any of the public schools did. And I think uh, that goes to the importance of what we were talking about in our second hour with Anya uh, Kamenetz, which is kids belong in school, in person, and the Catholic educators in New York and elsewhere, they recognized that. They recognized that they, it was the right thing to have children back in school. And they also recognized, and I'm, I don't think it was cynical on their part, but they recognized The incredible marketing opportunity that there was in terms of sending a message to the public that, yeah, there is an option for getting children in school and it's Catholic school. And I think you may see that continue going forward. The problem is a lot of these schools over the years closed. And uh, even with the surge in attendance that we're seeing over the last year or two, it doesn't get those schools that have closed over the last 20 years reopened, which is a shame. I think part of the reason that there's been a decline in Catholic school attendance over the years is that you've seen charter schools emerge to fill that void that Catholic schools used to fill. It used to be if you were in a a school district that wasn't really up to par or you wanted a school district that w- or you wanted a school option for your child that was better than uh, the local public school you would put them in Catholic school and parochial school or something along those lines these days you've seen the emergence of a lot of terrific very successful charter schools. The Success academy is one example, but there's a number of others and uh, I think that's um that's be- filling that's scratching the itch. That used to be scratched by sending a child to Catholic school, all right, we are going to continue with talk topic dedication hour. If you have a talk topic that you would like covered, tell me what it is eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 just tell us who you 're dedicating it to. e Frank is in Astoria Hello, e Frank
8: yeah, I would like to dedicate um uh, this talk topic um yeah, you know, there was a show years ago uh, called Bonnie Miller. Uh, you know, Curtis Lee talks about a swagger man with no plan. You know, there was this inspector, um, how Lyndon played um, Bonnie Miller. He couldn't pass the inspector's exam mm-hmm. until-
3: Thank you, E. Frank. I, I'm not sure that's really in keeping with the exercise here. It, the idea is just like you would do with, on Cousin Bruce's show, pick a song that we would then play and say, oh, this goes out to my mom. You pick a talk topic that we will then talk about, and you say, oh, this goes out to Cousin Billy somewhere, you know? Go, go, go. See
15: that?
3: 800-848-9222, uh, talk topic, dedication, hour, half hour, hour, half hour. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe.
9: Hey, Reverend Romano. How are you doing tonight? I'm
3: doing well. I appreciate you uh, r- recognizing the, the proper manner in which I should be greeted.
9: Of course, my, my good friend. Uh, the reason why I'm calling it is respect. Kids, you know, me and my wife teach both our children respect. And I find that a lot of kids are very disrespectful to the police, to their parents, and to the general public. And I I personally think it's a lot has to do with the schools. And I wanted to get your view on this, Frank.
3: I think that's part of it. I think that's a significant part of it. I think um, it's not just the, the schools, though. I mean, I think some of it comes down to uh, parenting. I think some of it comes down to the lack of respect that adults show one another. I think some of it comes down to the media. I think some of it comes down to uh, to religion as well. I, I mean, again, I don't think there's a I don't think it, there's, it's a coincidence that we've seen this tremendous reduction in people that attend church and an uptick in the perception of people that are expressing disrespect. You know, somebody the other day made the point about, uh, I don't remember what the discussion was, but how the the angry young man problem that we have in this country could be solved in part by military service. And I think there's something to that. I would love to see some sort of mandatory national service. And I would love to see young people, 17, 18, 19... Dedicate a year, maybe two years, to something. Maybe it's a a teaching fellowship program. Maybe it's the military. Maybe it's the Peace Corps. And uh, some cause greater than yourself. I don't know when the mentality changed in this country, but there was a time. You remember the... The speech that John F. Kennedy gave at his inauguration in 1961, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you could do for your country. Can you imagine any politician saying that today? No, I can't. I can't. All you see is politicians promising what we can do for you. Democrats promise giveaways. They say, "Well, we're going to forgive ten thousand dollars of student loan. Uh, we're going to extend uh, stimulus. We're going to uh, give everybody, um, you know, a chicken in every pot." Republicans love to do the same thing with taxes. We're going to give everybody a tax cut, and uh, even if you don't pay taxes, we're going to give you a a child care tax credit. Uh, even if you don't um, have a child, we're going to give you an earned income tax credit. And we're, it, they love politicians love to give things away because politicians recognize. That the mentality in this country now is not about sacrifice. It's not about we're all in this together. Let's all be prepared to tighten our belts and sacrifice for the cause of making this country a better place and overcoming the challenges that we have. Now the mentality, both among adults and young people, is let me do as well as I can for myself, not necessarily for my community. I think I'm not sure when that changed. Um, I think it may have changed in the baby boomer era, but something changed in this country. I don't think it was like flicking a switch. I think it was gradual where folks, instead of wanting to do right for their neighbors and their community, they want to do right for themselves. And I think that's part of the demise in uh, respect that people perceive. And I don't think you're alone in perceiving it. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 Stephen New Jersey topic please.
2: Hey, hey, how are you, Frank? Good morning. Morning. I wanted to dedicate the topic to my daughter, who I dropped off in college last week, who's doing phenomenal. Right. And uh, and I just wanted to speak about how parents don't let their kids grow up and shelter them, and try to micromanage them instead of letting them experience things. And I see my daughter in the last week and a half just becoming a lot more mature and having to do things for herself. And then I see on Facebook all these people, um, Facebook groups, trying to micromanage their kids and ask mm. questions for their kids. And, and I think we have, to let them, we have to let them experience things and become adults instead of
4: trying to shelter them.
3: Well, Steve, I certainly agree with you. And congratulations to your daughter and, and good luck to her. Um, and thank you. I agree with everything you said. I am a big believer in allowing children to have greater independence. And uh, I am like a broken record in citing the writings and the advocacy and the work of Lenore Skenazy from Let Grow. You can check out her website at letgrow.org. And basically, their philosophy over there is when adults step back, kids step up. Now, they used to have the term helicopter parent. Helicopter parent is the good old days. Now we almost have drone parents, parents that insist, even as uh, you heard the caller there, as they, as kids are going into college and adulthood, they're still needing to micromanage every aspect of a child's life, or not a child's life, a young adult's life. And I think that really hinders their development and their ability to become productive members of society. That's why I like the let grow movement. The idea that you should treat children um, as physically and emotionally fragile is bad for them. And it's bad for you as an adult or a parent or a grandparent. Let grow is making it easy, normal and legal to give kids the independence they need to grow into capable, confident and happy adults. And I think that's part of what's What's missing? 800 848 Gerard is in West Palm Beach, Florida. Topic, please.
2: Uh,
18: this is, uh, Frank, about uh, going back to 1972. Just heard last week on the radio where uh, the Academy uh, uh, apologized to an Indian girl who was sent up by Marlon Brando to accept his uh, Oscar.
3: Right. Sasheen Littlefeather.
18: Uh, yes, and I wondered, I never heard anything about it since, and um, she was booed off the stage, and, and she said that uh, even, uh, whatever she said, I don't know, but, but she said John Wayne had to be restrained from assaulting her.
3: Yeah, I, I spoke with Sasheen Littlefeather about that, and thank you, uh, Gerard. Who are you dedicating this to, by the way? Uh Nobody. Well, that's not really in keeping with the spirit of the exercise, is it, Gerard? Thank you. I um I, I'm going to reach out to Sashine Little Feather about coming on next week because we had a a good rapport in the conversation we had about four about five or six years ago, and I really do think. And again, I am the least politically correct person in the world. I don't like identity politics. I don't like, um, you know, uh, the viewing the world of the 1970s through the lens of the 21st century. That being said, I really do think it was the right thing for the Academy to apologize to Sasheen Littlefeder, because she's still alive. I'd rather have the Academy, who really didn't treat her well, apologize to her now, as opposed to needing to do it to her her descendants 40 or 50 years from now. But um, she was booed. She was treated very harshly. Even though she did, one, she was doing what Brando asked of her, Two, she didn't break any rules. At the time, there was no prohibition on someone else accepting an award on someone's behalf. Three, she was right. Hollywood at that point was not treating American Indians the right way. As far as what she said about John Wayne, I I, I hate to look. Obviously, I wasn't there. But I hate to think that what she said was true, Uh, not that basically she said that John Wayne was super angry with her. And when she got off stage, he was ready to uh, he was furious. He was fuming. I don't think she used the term assault, but almost she kind of implied that he was ready to go go crazy on her and needed to be restrained. Everything that I've heard about John Wayne is is the that he was a big a, a just a gentleman. I am uh, a huge John Wayne fan so obviously this is you know probably prejudicing my my view of him I would hate to think that he was ungentlemanly I've always it's viewed him you, <laughs> I've always viewed him as the epitome of uh, an American Gentlemen, so somebody
9: oh. ought to belt
2: you in the
3: mouth. <laughs> Although you see, he has his moments where he's capable of other things. we we'll talking, see. mister. We're going to invite uh, her back on and uh, and and talk about uh, how she feels about this apology. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. My Uncle John in New Jersey. Hello, Uncle John.
8: Hey, uh, nephew Frankie. How you doing?
3: I'm doing great. What's going on? <laughs>
8: Uh, not too much. I've been up for a while and uh, listening to you. It's a great show as usual.
3: Well, well, thanks. Yeah, I hear. Uh, I hear that you were the reason you were up is you had a, a colonoscopy recently.
8: Yeah, I had it on Monday. Uh, it, it was. Uh, I guess the anesthesia uh, was so great that uh, today I didn't need as much sleep. So. <laughs>
3: <laughs> All right. Well, everything's good um, health-wise. Then yeah. I guess. Oh yeah,
8: F- fantastic! Thank you.
3: Good. All right, so what's on your mind? What do you want to talk about?
8: So so my topic uh, that I'd like you to talk about is organ donation or the lack thereof, and I'm dedicating it to all living and deceased organ donors.
3: Now, and and I've mentioned this before, but you actually you're a living organ donor and you gave your uh your one of your kidneys to your brother-in-law Richie, right? And saved his life.
8: Cool. That's
3: correct. Yeah. That's right. And uh, by the way, I, I, cause we have at least three listeners in our audience who listen every day that are in need of a, a kidney. I'm wondering if you can describe to anybody that's listening now how you've benefited, not just, uh, not just Richie, but how you've benefited from uh, being a living organ donor.
8: Well, it, it's when they say that, uh, uh, it's, it's more about what you give than what you get in life. Uh, this is one of those things you, we all have an extra one. Uh, it is, uh, you know, inti- it, it could be intimidating, uh, emotionally that, you know, knowing your, your one kidney less than what you, uh, were born with, but, uh, you live fine without it. I, I'm fine without, uh, the, that extra kidney, uh, If anything, I I don't even notice uh, any difference in my habits. um, You know, my bathroom habits haven't changed at all since uh, I've uh, given it up. And and knowing that I have uh, a a friend and a a relative that's still around because uh, of something I was able to do for him. You know, it's like if you saw someone... uh, Uh, standing in the street and a bus was coming at him, uh, you know, I think you'd uh, want to save them and push them out of the way. And and, and it's kind of in that realm. Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. Well, well said. And uh, I'm glad you brought this up and thank you. And I'm glad you're doing well. Thanks for listening. Thank you for calling. I am a big proponent of uh, organ donation, and I would love to see a few things. One, I think everybody should be an organ donor, even if you can't do, go the step that my uncle John went and uh, be a living organ donor. If you could at least join the organ donor registry so that you can donate your organs once you pass on, that would make a a huge difference in people's lives, literally. But uh, I think there's a number of things that can be done from a public policy standpoint. Now, what we do in this country is we make it so that no one's an organ donor unless you sign up to be an organ donor. What I would love to see is the exact opposite approach. I would love to see it assumed that every person is an organ donor unless you opt out. That's number one. Number two, uh, we've covered this around the time that um, there was that case out of Texas. If you're... In prison, I think that it would behoove the system to offer you some incentive in terms of uh, reduced time on your prison sentence if you were to donate certain organs. Number three, same thing, if you're on death row, and again, this was very controversial at the time that I said this, but I stand by this, if you're on death row and the government is going to kill you anyway, and, again, I'm not a believer in the death penalty, but I know a lot of people are. If the government's going to kill you anyway, we ought to be able to get your organs at some point, either before or or immediately after. I think that ought to be par for the course. And then, um, you know, in in this country, you're not allowed to sell your organs. In other countries, you are. I think if we were to add a financial incentive there, whether it's in terms of uh, actual direct payments or at least in terms of tax incentives, I think that would dramatically increase the organ supply. I think those are all a few things that we can do. 800 848 Larry in the Bronx, topic please.
10: Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call. A great show. Uh, my uh, request is for a young lady that I was engaged to 50 years ago. I'm 68 years old and going back, well, get too young to remember. It was a wildly crazy days, and her name was Kathy, Kathy Pelham, and we were engaged to be married. But back in those days, it was a crazy disco uh, world, and uh, I kind of missed my boat. But I wanted to dedicate the song. If you have it, by Frank Sinatra, for once in my life, I have someone who needs me. Because the last couple of years of her life, before she passed away, we became soulmates. And if I needed somebody to talk to, I'd call her, and the same was for her calling me. So, but, so Larry, was Larry,
3: uh, and again, it's a topic uh, dedication, not a song dedication. But, Larry, just so interesting, you were engaged at 18, and then you guys didn't end up getting married?
10: That's correct. Uh, Like I was trying to explain, back in those days, uh, it was a little wild and crazy, and it was disco days, and I kind of messed up, uh, if you know what I mean. Anybody that remembers that time, you know, it was one disco this night, one disco that night, and girls were plenty. and I kind of blew my chance, and I regretted it ever since. We both had, you know, through the years, both gone through marriages, but in our later years, became great friends and soulmates and could how did share you how a, did you
3: guys uh, end up reconnecting? Uh
10: in actuality, um, I always knew who and where she was, but my sister worked with her uh, in the this is in the City of Miller show and uh, they worked at City Hall. And my sister told me and she said, Oh, Larry, I saw Kathy and over the years was we always have the holidays together, Christmas, Easter, whatever. And so I said, give me your number. We called. I called. And uh, by that time, uh, she was divorced. Uh, I was divorced. Uh, and uh, we just, you know, started to become friends again. We went out a couple times for a lunch or a dinner. And uh, just thought through a minute and lived life. Has happened over all these years, and on my part, regretting the fact that that was the one person in my life wow. that I never loved like anybody else in my life.
3: Well, well, that's and, great, uh, Larry. That's uh, that's great that you guys were able to reconnect, and I think that is it's an important lesson for everybody. You know, they always say uh, like so the, it's a cliche; it's repeated so often, but like most cliches, it happens to be true. They always say youth is wasted on the young, right? And if you could go back when you're in the prime of your life physically knowing the things that you know as an older person, things would be a lot different, right? But I guess part of of the mistakes that you make in your youth, they help – help temper the wisdom that uh, that you get later in life right well let's try one more talk topic dedication and then we'll do the $1000 minute Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 848 that's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 848 Walter in Rockland topic please
4: yeah are you familiar with uh, Walter Pigeon
3: yeah he was in he was in Forbidden yes. Planet which we were just talking about
5: recently
4: yeah so that was like the beginning, they say Star Trek was like really based on, the, it was supposed to be real. The, the, the Forbidden Planet was supposed to be a a, a real life um, sky-fi. It wasn't just, it was a serious, I mean, sky-fi movie, you know?
3: Yeah, um, so who are you dedicating this talk topic to, Walter?
4: Uh, no one in particular, but he was, you know think he was a very good actor, and I feel he's underappreciated, you know?
3: All right. Well, Walter, I do like that you say sky-fi instead of sci-fi. That's the kind of thing I would do. I don't do that, but I would do that. In fact, I may steal that from you. But uh, I agree with you. Uh, Walter Pigeon, even though you, this is an undedicated talk topic, and some might even call it unauthorized, um, Walter Pidgeon was a fine actor. And you watch that picture, Forbidden Planet, that's one of those films. It's hard to believe. It's 70 years old now, almost. And it's one of those films that it holds up just as well today as it did in the 50s. And it really is uh, prescient. And uh, for those of you that remember the comedic stylings of Leslie Nielsen from all the great satires that he was in, like uh, Naked Gun and Airplane and Spy Hard and everything that he did, He was terrific in a lot of serious roles, including as the captain in Forbidden Planet. So uh, I agree with you. I think Forbidden Planet was a terrific picture. Hey, we're going to give somebody an opportunity to win $1,000. If you would like to win it, be the seventh caller now to 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, you'll get to play the $1,000 minute and answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you don't know... Shakespeare's first name, don't call. If you don't know Shatner's first name, don't call. If you don't um, know how many continents there are, don't call. If you don't know how many letters in the alphabet there are, don't call. For the rest of you, be the seventh caller now. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Mother's side of midnight with Frank Marano.
3: I'm Frank Moreno. It is time for us to do our part to reduce poverty in this country. And we are going to try and give away $1,000 to anyone who has a basic understanding of trivia. It is time for
1: The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win
9: $1,000. Here's your host, Frank
3: Morano. Ah, yes, yes, indeed. I am Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let us say hello to Eric in Monroe. Now, Eric, are you in Monroe, New Jersey, or in Monroe, uh, New York? New York. New York. Okay, great, great. Well, wonderful. There's a lot of great uh, great folks in Monroe, New York, and uh, we're wishing you the, the best of luck. Uh, you know how to play this game, right, Eric?
4: Correct. Uh, to Slewa, by the way.
3: Indeed. Okay, there you go. I, I'll second that. All right, uh, without further ado, why don't we get started? And remember, whenever you don't know the answer, a safe guess is always William, right? So uh, William's always a safe guess. We saw that with Shatner yesterday we saw that with Shakespeare the day before rarely is Willard ever a good guess in fact i'm looking at the questions now there's no one named Willard in any of the any of the, any of the Well no that's not one of the questions not one of the not one of the questions
15: I was making a joke okay guys
3: Yeah uh, no it's hysterical All right what
10: flying animal
3: guides Santa's sleigh Reindeer. What Saturday Night Live cast member starred in the films Ghostbusters and Groundhog Day? Bill Murray. What state had congressional primaries yesterday? Excuse me? What state had congressional primaries? New York. Prim- what football player is running for U.S. Senate in Georgia?
10: Kirsten Walker.
3: Who played Spock on Star Trek?
10: Robert Nimoy.
3: Ugh, we'll give you that, but no. Um, no, actually, we can't give you that. I'm sorry. I'll get in trouble. What What happened? Well, but you said it's Robert Nimoy.
4: Wait, wait, no, oh, my gosh. I can, can, I, can I go back?
3: Now, I, I don't think so. I mean, you, you, you kind of got it wrong. When I mean, um, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I, I think, Eric, why don't we give you another opportunity to play tomorrow? Okay, take Eric's number, because he did say Nimoy. Had he just said Nimoy, we would have given it to him. So, Eric,
5: oh what we, come on! Yeah, I mean, but
3: you can't—you can't give the guy a different first name,
4: Eric. Ouch! I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry,
3: Eric. I'm going to put you on hold. Give Kenneth your information. We'll let you play again tomorrow. Okay? All right. Hang on. Robert was his cousin. No, it wasn't. Well, how do we know that? Right. Still well, a different the person. That's the, It is a different person. That's why we. That's why he lost. But exactly. <laughs> had he just had he given less information. He would have been right, you know? Woulda, coulda, shoulda. I know. That's why I feel bad, though. I feel like no hat yet, no no consolation prize. We'll give him an opportunity to play uh, tomorrow. So uh, Robert Nimoy. Who is Robert Nimoy? Let's see. If you Google Robert Nimoy, you know what comes up? Let's see. There's a Robert Nimoy on Facebook somewhere. Who is he? We don't know who he is. Doesn't appear to be anyone famous. But um, – He's li- he lives in Beverly, Massachusetts. Interestingly enough, and you know who was from Massachusetts? Leonard Nimoy. So maybe Robert Nimoy is Leonard Nimoy's cousin. Um, is is Kenneth on Facebook?
13: I'll ask him. When he's, yeah, you know, taking the info. He,
3: Kenneth, we'll give him a, a a task for tomorrow. Reach out to this guy Robert Nimoy that's on Facebook. And see if we can get him on the show tomorrow. Find out who he is and if he is Leonard Nimoy's cousin. Because that would be wild if he did turn out to be Leonard Nimoy's cousin. Um, So that's that. All right. 800-848-9222. Steve in Manhattan has been patiently holding. And why should Alex in Brooklyn get all the good phone lines today? Steve, what's on your mind?
19: All right. But uh, we have a technicality here because Leonard Nimoy would call talk shows with different names. So that last caller might have a technicality in and out to get back in and win. But, Frank, nobody ever wins this game. Why don't you give me the answers one night, and I'll split the G with you. Okay? I but will do
3: it stu- when you're in studio. When you're in studio, <laughs> I will I will give you the answers. It'll be, be right. a big scandal, like the Quiz Show scandal, the 50s.
19: Right, and you did bring up, you've been saying this for years, it's been your rallying cry, some sort of national... Uh, uh, apprenticeship or involvement for young kids, a draft, a military, anything. You have to realize, too, the last time we had a military draft in this country, there was 200 million people. Now we have about 350 million and like 5 million coming in every day. Illegally, it won't work out. You know, these kids are different today. What are they going to do? Try to attempt to enroll the giant, the most biggest joint in the world or something? I mean, these kids are different today. And they're really different personalities. And the school's... Let's face it, there's a lot of good kids out there, and there's a lot of bad kids. The problem is we don't deal with the bad kids anymore. Um, There are a lot of teachers today. It might be hard for the older part of this audience to understand this. Some of the teachers out there today side with the bad kids and will cover for them and will do anything for them to to, to cover up anything. There was a case out in in the Bronx in one of the high schools where there was a, a guy who was sexually assaulting people, and there was a problem in the school with one of the students and the teacher a couple of teachers refused to turn this kid in and what happened he turned out to be the guy outside the school assaulting girls sexually and everything. So there's a lot of people out there covering, and we can't, we can't deal with a problem if we don't address it directly. And I also like to add something else, folks. The thing with all these people coming in this country legally, a lot of businesses today are having problems filling their jobs because people are going back to work or they're just working for five companies and they're just doing different things. And these are the people who are going to fill those jobs They're not going to – who knows if they're going to be qualified or anything like that, but that's the reason why both political parties want him there. You don't hear no Republicans say to deport them. And uh, that guy Rand, Senator Rand, he – in 2019, when Trump wanted money to fund an emergency thing for the illegal immigration, he turned it down. Keep that in mind. Thank
3: you, Steve. All right. Now, by the way, one of the better emails that I got this week was from Tom from Westchester. And I won't share with you the whole – Email, But he has one good idea in this email that I got such a kick out of. And I am seriously thinking about pursuing this. Okay, this is what he writes. He writes he got a kick out of that guy that said Willard Shakespeare. And he said, we ought to restructure and modernize the premise of some of the plays and sonnets and publish them under the name Willard Shakespeare. Now, that's not the worst idea that I've heard. All of William Shakespeare's plays are in the public domain. That means I can set, I can publish them, distribute them anywhere I want. What if we did that? What if we slightly tweaked? And when I say slightly, I mean ever so slightly. Take away a little old English and a little, put, throw a little more modern English and keep everything the same. The stories are the same. The settings are the same. The characters are the same. And just re-release the collected works of Shakespeare as the collected works of Willard Shakespeare. I think this is actually a very good idea. I I, um, I think he's on something. And I bet you people would buy it, right? Who wouldn't want the collected works of Willard Shakespeare? Willard Shakespeare presents... Juliet and Romeo. What do we think? Willard Shakespeare presents Porklet. Right? I like it. Who else? Willard Shakespeare presents Othello. I like it. Like think it works. Um, if anyone wants to help me with that, let me know. I, I don't want to... See, I would like to get the credit for furthering the idea and then sort of be a cheerleader for it, but not have to spend much time on pursuing this when I'm not on the radio. So if anyone wants to actually do the actual work, the legwork, um, let me know. And maybe we can collaborate. As long as I don't have to do that much work. And I'm not trying to be lazy. It's just I don't have the time to put the work in. You know. Eight hundred eight four eight 848 9222 Ron is in
18: Pauling. Hello, Ron. Well, uh, good morning, Frank. And I really appreciate the movement that you uh, saw the erosion of in, in our service to our country. Um, I wanted to uh, try to rekindle that idea in our youth and the future generations somehow you know, we've had some organizations get uh, a bit squandered, like the Scouts, and uh, some of the things that helped promote service and greater good. And uh, in my kid's situation, and I'm dedicating that to my kids still with the topic he yeah, had, that, you know, I want to instill in them that there's a greater uh, service uh, to others at times and to try to uh, diminish some of that What what's in it for me. So... I really appreciate that topic, and I hope to try to rekindle that idea in this country.
3: Well, so any ideas, Ron, on how to rekindle that idea?
18: Well, I had thought for years that we could uh, support a conscription of youngsters coming out of high school to do a couple years in some sort of service. As you mentioned, to be uh, be it their social work, or if it's in, uh, it doesn't have to be military service. I did ten years in the Air Force. And it was good for me. It was good for me to do. But uh, there's a lot of uh, that uh, communities can provide from churches to uh, just adopting a highway. And uh, if they had to do something, and it, it also rings to the topic you had mentioned about how much do we direct our kids versus let them grow. Um, that gets circumstantial. In my case, my kids are, are we're a or a bit of a broken family, as I, my wife and I, are divorced. So we're both trying to manage our kids as single parents. So my horsepower to to direct them, you must do this or that, was a bit reduced. And I I think they are growing more independently, but I I do want to guide them more in those ways.
3: Mm. Ron, thank you for the call. I appreciate that. Thank you for your service to our country as well. I uh, I definitely think we could benefit. Society as a whole could benefit. From some mandatory national service, because uh, it does seem like there's just this pandemic of selfishness that has overtaken too many different aspects of the uh, of the culture. But um, it is interesting. Well, you know, we're going to try and get a hold of Robert Nimoy. See where he is. We'll do fifteen seconds of fame in just a minute. 848 It's one 1-800-848-9222. Just think. Willard Shakespeare presents 13th Night, right? Willard Shakespeare presents A Midwinter Day's Dream. I like it. I think we could be onto something here. Change a word here, change a word there, publish the book as Willard Shakespeare, and sell it for $27 like Sid Rosenberg selling his book. You know, I read through most of Sid Rosenberg's book I was not given a copy, but there was a copy lying around that I read through. And it's a good book. It's interesting. Some interesting stories I mentioned on page 27, but it's not exactly a lengthy book. So I I feel like uh, if he could charge $27 for that, we could charge $27 for The Temperature by Willard Shakespeare. Right. 15 seconds of fame next. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 open lines. 800 848 9222. Say whatever you like for 15 seconds. 800 848 9222.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Murano.
2: The sun
3: goes down You might need a place to call your own Somewhere out there on the other side Ah, uh, yes, this is The Other Side of Midnight, you one of our two theme songs by Stevie G and the Desalinators. Uh, very grateful for Stevie G and his work on this. Download the song on iTunes. By the way, I am participating in the Tunnel to Towers Walk On Sunday, September 25th, and uh, I am asking for your help, if you can make a contribution, large or small, you can go to walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. That's walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. Click on my photo to donate to my team. We could use the help, and so could the people that are helped by the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Without further ado...
1: Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Hey, JoJo in
4: Edgewater.
18: Hey, how you doing? Uh, shout out to all my dock builders out there Ralphie Rambo and Richie Hargrave, uh, Ryan Bergman, Dave Minetti, Joe Capoletti, DeFante Wednesdays. Let's go.
3: Tommy in Oyster Bay.
19: Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity were both told you have two choices for president. You can vote for Pat Buchanan or you can kiss the country goodbye. Willard in New Jersey.
3: Ah, uh, your phone's all screwed
19: up.
9: Mike and Lake George. That was Steven from Manhattan. Hey, tomorrow, Frank. I was going to use this line before the New uh, A playwright came up with it. Youth is wasted on the young. And you know what? There's a call of BLM. How about ALM? All lives matter. I'm proud to be second generation Italian-American Caucasian in my country.
3: Mike, thank you. Hey, uh, everybody that we didn't get to, call back tomorrow. We'll uh, get to you first.